from the maniacs who brought you the Al Adamson Masterpiece Collection, Severn Films brings you the Dungeon of Andy Milligan Collection box set. Oh, wow. Eight Blu-rays, one CD, plus new 128-page book by Stephen Thrower, one of my favorite critics on Earth. Uh, every surviving movie from this 1965 to 1984 New York-London period, restored from the best-known elements, including never-before-seen director's cut of Torture Dungeon, Bloodthirsty Butchers, Man with Two Heads, The Rats Are Coming, The Werewolves Are Here, and Blu-ray debuts of Video Nasty, The Ghastly Ones, Carnage, Guru the Mad Monk, The Long Lost, Gory Theatrical Cut, Legacy of Blood, plus lots more. The Dungeon of Andy Milligan, only selling at the Severn Film Store online. Also available for pre-order, Alex Iglesias' Day of the Beast and Perdita Durango, and Jadorowski's Santa Sangre on UHD, which I can only imagine is going to look incredible. Plus new Blu-ray special editions of Scream in the Streets, Nosferatu in Venice, Grizzly, Day of the Animals, and Deep Blood. Visit www.severin-films.com. This week's episode of Colors of the Dark is sponsored by RLJE Films. From multiple award-winning writer and director of the hit horror films such as The Descent and Dog Soldiers, Neil Marshall's The Reckoning is now playing in select theaters on demand and digital HD. Led by co-writer and star Charlotte Kirk, witness this powerful and terrifying story of a young woman falsely accused of being a witch and the cruel and violent punishment she endures throughout her trial. The ultimate witch hunt has begun. Own The Reckoning today on Apple TV. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all your favorite labels, including Cauldron Films, Arrow, Synapse, Severin, Mondo Macabro, and many more from all corners of the globe. Whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business uh, choice you have been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's Diabolic, D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K, DVD.com. And visit our sister company, Cauldron-Films.com. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, make sure that you enter promo code COLORS to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Again, that promo code for 25% off is colors. And while you're there, we also have awesome Fangoria merch, including Watch More Horror t-shirts and a sweet hoodie. to Colors of the Dark. I am your co-host, Rebecca McKendry. And I am Elric Kane, your other co-host. 
What number are we at? I number lose nine. Track. Number nine. Number. It's weird when we're going every other week because I feel I like know. we've been doing this for like months now, which we have been. Um, and also, we do all the Patreon ones in between, so it's a lot of. It is. It is. It's still a lot of podcasting. But um, last Friday, Elric and I had a very exciting evening screening "Bird with the Crystal Plumage" with a couple hundred people online, and it was great to revisit that film. It has been fun. Yeah, no, it was fun. We had even more people at this than the previous two screenings, and mm-hmm. it's also as nice to show like a great film the other two were super fun movies this was just a great movie and it's always fun to see it and kind of get some of the feedback at the time do a little bit of research uh we had brett berg from agfa join us um you know and it was just it was just you know fun conversation and i I really like afterwards if you if you're on the fence about attending one of these you know it doesn't just have to be about the movie afterwards we kind of open it up to any questions and it's kind of like a hangout while we're in this um you know pandemic moment still how you doing, Elric? How you doing this week? Oh, oh, I have seen way too many movies to be good. Uh, no human <sighs> should do what I've done this last few days. I was prepping for a Screen Drafts episode that comes out next week on Canon, which means I had to pick seven movies out of 150 or 200. What did I say? Which, uh, I can't say anything about it because it hasn't come out yet. But, you know, the Apple might be number one. I told Elric, Elric that Apple. if the Apple is not in the top oh, yeah. three... I can't speak to him ever That's again. said on the episode, like, don't worry. Like I got your text while I was on. over. Uh, so I was doing that, but at the exact same time as that prep, I was doing our show, and I also went to uh, Sundance, did the Sundance screenings. So I definitely have, I'm just like kind of out of my mind this week, and I've and the, it's just too much. But that's okay. I have some good stuff to talk about, and I'll do it fast, um, and, it'll, and it'll be fun. So I'm doing okay if I, you know, to make it through that. Yeah, it's still a pandemic. I'm doing okay. But I will say that the highlight of my week last week, like you went to see all the Sundance stuff. I went to the Miskatonic University online lecture on um, Itogaro Rampo, which was absolutely freaking awesome. Um, Just two hours straight into Rampo's life, you know, his work, tropes, tones, why he created what he did, why he you know, questions that we still have about him. Right. Um, For those who don't know, he's kind of like the Japanese Edgar Allan Poe, like, you know, much later than Poe, but kind of taking a bit of that, right? He was taking. Yeah. And, but he was much more, I mean, and not that Poe wasn't, prolific. Um, But Rampo, like one of the things that he's most well known for in Japan is a kid's book. Um, He wrote like this kid's like superhero book, which is they were talking about like everyone knows who Rampo is, but they know what it is because he wrote like this Japanese version of like Batman. Mm -hmm. Um, And so everybody knows that. But then most of the stuff that Rampo wrote, he also wrote mystery novels, much like Poe, a kind of film noir in that capacity, Mm -hmm. noir because they were both. Detective type characters, yeah. But then he also wrote these absolutely absolutely twisted tales and that's where kind of my interest for him peaks is um it's a lot of kind of murder mysteries it's a lot of horror stuff it's a lot of really fetishistic stuff um there there were definitely um rumors that he may have been gay but it was never confirmed in his lifetime so uh much like the the person actually giving the lecture said you know we don't want to speculate or anything like that but we do see a lot of um trans and um, LBGTQ themes emerge in his work in varying capacities. So right after I um, watch, I, I saw the lecture. Um, oh, and the other theme that I was so just like, I never even thought about it, the idea of turning humans into furniture. 
Hmm. Apparently he has one story that is called the human chair where a guy like literally like makes himself into a chair. Yeah. I think I've seen a little bit of a clip of that. That was animated like, or something hand-drawn animation. That is something that is now included in almost every Rampo adaptation there's always something where a human becomes furniture like the element of the human chair the other thing is the human caterpillar where it's basically boxing helena where like arms and legs cut off um and it's based off he has a story called the caterpillar which is literally about a husband that has that happen in war and then a wife is kind of left with him and he can't even communicate anymore he is just a torso um and and you know kind of her her emotional and psychological and it gets really psycho told with that. Um, but you know, these kind of like tropes of restraint and just, it, just amazing stuff. So I decided to watch one of his films that I had not seen yet. Um, going into the lecture, I had seen horrors of malformed men. I'd seen um, watcher in the attic and blind beast. Yeah, um, I decided to see a uh, black lizard. Cause I didn't even realize that was really based on his work. I had a bootleg copy that I bought years ago at some convention um, because I didn't know what it was. And then as soon as they were talking about it, I was like, holy shit, I think I own that. Um, And so immediately after the lecture finished, I went and watched it and it was just a gem. Mm. I had the best time. This is from 1968 based on a Rampo story directed by Kinji um, Fukasaku, Mm. who was the guy who ended up doing Battle Royale was one of his last films. This is obviously much earlier. Masterpiece, total masterpiece Battle Royale. Yeah, and he's got a long, long legacy yeah. of filmmaking. This is obviously much earlier in his career. Uh, Battle Royale was like right near the, the end, end of it. Um, but the whole, it's a, it's about a, a kidnapping. Um, but honestly, it's got all of these, it's campy, it's noirish, it's a mystery. It's all set in this crazy over-the-top club. It still has all of the elements of kind of gender fluidity. Human chairs become a big part of it. Um, bodies as statues, morphing bodies, missing limbs, confinements, restraint, fetishes. It still is just so rampo once I learned what that was. So um, essentially two things to take from this. One, everybody should go look up who Rampo is and kind of explore his body of work because it's amazing. And I just ordered a whole bunch of his stuff that I haven't read yet um, that I'm super excited to dive into. And second, Miskatonic University is currently doing all of their classes from all of the different cities online. On Tuesday morning, the one in London is doing one on voodoo movies I can't wait for. They have some amazing stuff. And so um, this is just kind of a plug for them of while everything that they are doing is online, it is definitely worth checking them out. Um, because I was always totally jelly. I couldn't go to the New York City ones. And yeah, now you part of everything. Me that, and we, we, we helped launch the L.A. Mm-hmm. one, you know, for the first season in L.A., which was kind of yep. a nice honor. Um, but but and it's in great capable hands. But I, I've got to say, like, I th- I hope that this pandemic will open people's minds a bit because I don't believe that, like, let's say you do um, screen share the London uh, lecture. I don't think that will stop people from also wanting to be there in person. Therefore, I think it's a win-win. I think you can have a great crowd of a couple hundred people and play to the whole world Um, because I, I I think it's better for horror. I think these things should go beyond just their cities. And I hope, I hope they actually uh, take that um, and run with in the future too. Like hopefully, hopefully we'll, if the people support it anyway, I think that's cool. Um, Yeah. One day uh, I'd love to do one. It's one of those things where if I had the exactly right thing, which I, it would, you know, it'd probably be the wheelhouse that you could probably guess with me, some art horror thing, but um, 
yeah, I remember enjoying your aquatic car one that we did here in LA. But again, you wish it was on tape and something that mm-hmm. could be shown again, not just one Thank time. Thank you. No, there's one coming up um, on Sean Hudson, who's the guy who wrote all the slug novels. And oh, yeah, I only know him from the slug novels, but apparently he's got a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. So I am so excited to be able to attend these um, while we're, it's it's the only glimmer of hope I've had from the pandemic is, <laughs> well, at least we can do this. You know, I can see all of these now, but Tell me, what did you see at Sundance? Well, I'll get to the Sundance ones first. I'll start. I have two comedies, uh, horror comedies that are brand new movies. I that... have a horror comedy as well. Okay, good. So I'll do my okay. two and then you do your one because uh, these were actually both really fun. I think both come with high recommendations. And I'm, as you know, I'm not the horror comedy guy for the most part. So Psycho Gorman, uh, a lot of people have already been talking about that one, so I don't need to go. Uh, as a kid, I loved the, the Richard Pryor film, The Toy. And now I'm very scared to ever watch it again because I have to I have to assume it's completely racist and terrible. Like I haven't seen it in 40, you know, 35 years, but I loved it as a kid because it just was like, oh, you get have this friend and it's funny. It's Richard Pryor, who I love. This is basically the toy, but with a giant uh, mutant monster from space. And it's this little girl and a boy, her older brother. uh, They play this like very aggressive football kind of game that they've made up the rules to in the backyard. She always kicks his ass. She kind of bullies him, even though she's the younger sister. Uh, They see something kind of glow in the ground one night and they dig it up. And it's this orb that they remove. Um, And then, of course, the next day, this evil, ancient alien warlord uh, called, you know, I don't remember what his actual name is, emerges. And the only reason he doesn't kill them by blinking is because she has stolen this orb. And the orb is the one thing that can control him. So, So basically, he can destroy. He's like Thanos. He can destroy worlds, but he can't do anything to her while she has the orb. So, of course, she makes him play silly games and uh, toy, you know, literally like playing with your Barbies kind of thing. Uh, and it's kind of ludicrous. But this is by Stephen uh, Kostansky, who did The Void, Manborg, Father's Day. And anyone who's listened to me long enough knows that actually I haven't liked any of those. Um, and I don't mean that to be mean. I just, it's just not my bag. It's like one of those things that it's a sweet spot, especially like The Void could have been my favorite movie ever. And it just isn't. See, I really liked The Void. Manborg yeah. was not for me. I appreciated it was it's, not for yeah, me. The comedy but I really liked The Void. You know, The Void I particularly didn't like because it's all the things I like in a movie, but then it felt like a pastiche of it and too much of it. All. It was. But anyway, this movie rocks. And it's so. And the reason I'm, I would never be negative about anyone, because I know this is this have, these guys have a huge following, this one to me is the one that hits the sweet spot. And I think, I can't, I can't imagine really anyone not liking this. I Like, again, it's not the kind of subgenre I go to. And even I was like thinking, it's so charming. The girl is so annoying. She's like the most perfectly annoying younger sister. And the way she uses this intergalactic being is hilarious. Eventually, they name him Psycho Gorman. And then, of course, what they didn't realize is there are other intergalactic um, assassins uh, are all going to descend uh, to planet Earth to destroy him, um, which is going to create a problem now that they're kind of bonding with him. And it's just the father and mother are hilariously ridiculous, dopey. Uh, parental figures that you can completely identify with if you're a a youngish parent um even though they're awful you can totally kind of understand them it's just a fun movie so i I do recommend that one a lot um and then the one i liked even more i think psycho gorman's gonna be the more popular for most listeners uh but for me there was this other one uh called bloody hell and I really like this movie. Uh, it's actually Bloody Hell. Bloody what Hell. It's brand new. Now it's just come out. Oh. Uh, Alistair Grierson. It is definitely in the Evil Dead 2 type of comedy. So basically, it's, uh, I think it starts in Iowa or one, it's, it's a town like that. I've just already forgotten. Um, and it is a guy is always going into the bank. This guy, Ben O'Toole, great performance. It's, he's definitely to me like, 
a Bruce Campbell, like a guy who just bursts into the scene, like, who's this actor? He's going to go far. He uh, is in a bank. Um, you don't know much about him. He's always trying to step behind a couple people because there's this one cute teller that he wants to talk to. And just as he gets to it, the bank gets robbed. And these two guys in like the mask come in. They start, you know, uh, harassing everyone. It's getting pretty intense. And he basically gets up in Terminator style and he ends up killing all the robbers. And it's pretty psychotic almost where everyone's like, whoa, what happened? He almost goes too far. Well, it turns out there's an accident. Um, so he gets everyone out except one person. And so he gets charged with manslaughter. So this guy who should be a hero gets put in jail. He's in jail for about eight years. He comes out of jail. So it's kind of serious at the start. Mm-hmm. It's kind of nice. He gets out of jail and he decides and everyone wants to know what he's going to do. He's on all the news. He's in, you know, he's a, he's a, a kind of celebrity figure. Um, and he goes, I'm, he's, I'm going to Finland. And so the rest of the film's in Finland. And he's like, why'd you go to Finland? It turns out he did a, a spit wad when he was in prison on, at a, at an Atlas and it landed on Finland. So he's decided literally to leave prison to go to Finland. He gets to the Finland airport to get away from all the celebrity. And a couple people watch him who are kind of creepy um, and literally the first people who lay eyes on him end up abducting him and he ends up chained to the downstairs basement hanging from a hanging from like a, a thing and you're like is this gonna be a torture porn movie and you don't really know what's going on and then it turns out this crazy i want to say cannibalistic that's part of it uh but this really insane picture perfect family on the outside from finland but are actually really demented there is a kind of a creature thing happening and uh uh, I don't want to spoil much if you don't want to hear anything, but the next part's a ho- the kind of the hook. Um, so go for 10 seconds if you don't want to hear this. Um, but he's hanging there and he has not l- got a leg anymore. Um, oh my God. So you've just gone from this guy who's a hero to prison to I'm going to go to Finland and straight away he's fucked up. And so then it's him hanging there. And then the real movie starts, which is he has more or less a split persona that basically out of body the exact same actor talks to himself constantly and he learned to do it in jail but it's kind of the ego of him who's always like we could take them let's do it let's take these criminals and he's the problem part of the relationship so the whole movie is really him with this other figure until other stuff starts happening and it gets really bloody it gets really wild in the carnage in this house and it's really surprising this is one i had heard nothing about except one person on our one of our socials just post a picture saying this was actually a good time and that was enough for me to go you know what i'm gonna try it and i did and i had a blast because the guy's so good the actor is so fun where is this this is on amazon prime yeah I okay on there um so you know again it won't be for everyone but if that type of humor definitely that evil dead 2 uh kind of uh and it's super violent i, I thought it was just a blast um and it was just a surprise i knew nothing about it. i believe it is the horror collective i think it's one of their first releases uh you know that district distro releases and we jonathan barkon and, and co who are running the horror collective so congrats to those guys because this one was a good time wow that is awesome In my heart, um please. So yeah, this is another horror comedy. This one is called Save Yourselves. Mm-hmm. And this was on Hulu. And Ryan Turek recommended this mm-hmm. one to me. Um, we were texting a couple of days ago and he was like, you check this one out. You're going to like it. And I did. It was absolutely a blast. Um, the setup is that it's this Brooklyn couple who are professionals. Um, but it's kind of a sense of what do they do? Like he does something with computers and she's a personal assistant. So she does like booking flights and cataloging meetings and organizational stuff. And she's, she's really good at being a personal assistant, but um, they both feel very lost and aimless. Like it, it felt very real. Like this is definitely um, was the high point of the movie for me was watching them. And they're like talking to their friends who are like, yeah, I just got back from like hiking Venezuela and they have 
no ambition. They don't know what they're doing. They're discussing whether or not to have a kid. Um, they're just, there's one line where she's just, maybe we should try being vegan again. Like they're just looking for something yeah, to define them. Yeah. yeah, a cause or something. And so they define, they decide that it must be that they're addicted to their phones and that if they can just give up technology for a weekend, they will have this revelation of figuring out who they are um, and what kind of their, their larger scheme is. And so one of their friends um, has a cabin in upstate New York. So they go to stay in the cabin and the rule of the weekend is no technology. So they leave notes on their phone, messages that say, we're having a technology-free weekend we're not going to have our phones on. We're not checking email and that's it. And they turn their phones off and then aliens invade. Hmm. Think like critters ish aliens, but kind of cuter. Um, but they have no idea what's going on. So they're just kind of seeing these ancillary things like weird people kind of walking through. Um, they wake up one morning and, um, they discover that somebody has drinking, drank all the alcohol in the house. The aliens are attracted to ethanol. And so they're like, we don't know what's going on. And then um, they they realize kind of that there is something bigger going on. And then they decide to turn their phones back on and they realize that the world has blown up like Brooklyn's gone. Their parents, one of their parents has like left on a boat out to sea because they think that sea might be safe, like New Jersey's toast, like and the world has basically blown up. But they are trapped in this cabin with these adorably cute little aliens invading and um, trying to figure out what to do. And the biggest thing is that they realize that even though that they're adults, they have no skills. Like they have no life skills. Like how do you make a I fire? I already don't want to watch this because yeah. I can relate to hard. <laughs> how do you forage for food? And there's one point where he's like, I don't even know how to do plumbing. And hmm. yeah, it's just kind of like that, even though that, you know, she knows how to book flights and coordinate and do Excel spreadsheets and tabs and everything like that. Um, and he knows computers that they have absolutely no real life skills. And um, the aliens are are these adorable little piles of fluff. Like, honestly, the first time they see one, they think it's like a throw pillow. Um, and so they're really just cute little, think like tribbles. Um, yeah. But then, then the way that they actually kill you is really fucking intense. Like when it first happened, I was like, holy shit. Mm. Um, it's crazy. And so, yeah, this one was just fun. This one is not horror in like an evil dead sense. There are no like crazy bloodbaths, um, but the aliens definitely do kill people. But most of it is about these two characters and kind of what they're going through. They were just a really charming real life couple that I just deeply enjoyed watching them and what they were doing and where they go. I saw this one getting some hate online because I do have to say the ending is kind of ambiguous. Mm. Um, but th there's a couple of different ways that you could take it. And I think that coming off of what is essentially kind of a, a horror comedy that, you know, kind of having this ambiguous kind of existential ending um, didn't sit with a lot of people. But I saw the whole movie as existential because it varies. And maybe it just hit me at a sweet spot during the pandemic um, because I think we're all going through that right now. But since the whole movie is very much about finding yourself and then being forced to confront yourself during a crisis and realizing that you're not the person that you thought you were um, and then having this crazy existential ending, I was like, oh, shit, that hit. Mm. Um, so, yeah, like I... I thought it worked really, really well. But yeah, it was a fun, even though that I'm making it sound like it's super heady because it's all about finding yourself. It was presented in such a fun manner. And this one is on Hulu right now.
Well, you could identify with that, and I could identify you with this next one, which was uh, Dark Star Pictures did a streaming film festival a couple weekends ago, uh, or maybe mm-hmm. last weekend, uh, where they put up all their films that were coming out. And one I had heard a lot of good things over the last couple year, uh, last year or so at festivals was called Jumbo, um, directed by a French film by Zoe Widdock. And it, I, I won't say much about it because there isn't a lot to say, but it's the actress from Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, which isn't horror, but if you haven't seen it, it's definitely one of the best films the last few years it's a love story between two women it's just really electric and this actress looks about 20 years to me she looks like 20 years younger in this movie but it's literally about a girl who works at a like an adventure land kind of like a low rent uh, disney let's imagine but has a ferris you know a part she's a little not quite all right in the head she seems a little quieter antisocial maybe uh, her mom's really dominant and her mom's really sexual and she's the opposite and she goes to work and there's something called like the jumbotron it's like just a really cool roller coaster thing that you lifts people and spins and she literally falls in love with it and that is the film is about a woman who falls in love and i mean sexual love to the entire the whole shebang just pure love she loves it it loves her no one can see this love, but she tries to express it to other people and people think she's batshit crazy. But when we see her and it together, it feels like there is a thing. It never talks. It has lights and it has. And somehow this is probably what I, I remember tweeting that night going, this movie makes you care and feel something. It's proof that anything there's no story on earth that you can't come up with that if you do it right you can connect with an audience. And this to me was proof of that. It's actually a very, very touching movie. I wouldn't want to say too much because there isn't too much to the story. It's just one to look out for. It's, it's genre in a way. It's not, it's not exactly hard, but it's got something other. It's that psychotronic uh, kind of movie. And there's something about it. I thought was actually kind of special. I I bought into it, Um, but so weird. And of course I thought of you because I remember not, not falling in love directly with a machine, but your love of Disney and um, you know, so you weren't you... the only one who made that connection because okay. um, in my graduate class, I always make my grad students, um, my first year grad students, they have to bring like a film book report to every uh-huh. single class. And the first 20 minutes of every class is just we go round robin with our book report of what we watched this week. And it's honestly just a great way for us to kind of share and make sure that everybody's watching stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, last week, somebody opened it with... Dr. McKendry, you're actually going to love this movie. It's about a woman who falls in love with an amusement park ride, like really like has sex with it. And I was like, oh, you're going to need to back that up and really explain all of this there. Um, but yeah, and then they immediately went with like my fascination with the Disney theme park, um, which is like I miss Disney like I miss a person right yeah. now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's true. But it, yeah, we're look out, worth looking out for that one. I think it's very original. Um that's uh, awesome. So, so look out for that. And it was cool that they were doing it. They had some other really good titles good. Uh, in there too. I just, that was the only one I had time to watch. So I read a book, um, but but before I, I will give it a quick plug before you get into Sundance, because man, okay. I know there's a I'll Science Ano one that, no, I want to hear about the Science Ano film. Um, but I read a book called One of Us is Lying, mm-hmm. which has been out for a couple of years. And I have a feeling that a lot of our listeners have probably already encountered this. Um, but I was a little late to the party on this one um, by Karen McManus. It is something that I was like, man, how come nobody thought of this before? It is essentially Breakfast Club where one of the kids kills one of the other kids and then they have to figure out who did it. Um, so they are in and this is all like part of the the first chapter of the book is a group of kids 
are all accused of shit. Um, it's cell phones. They're all caught with cell phones in their backpacks, but they're not their cell phones. So they all think that they've been like punked where somebody put all these cell phones in their backpacks. And then when they pulled them out in class, they were like, this isn't mine. But the teacher still put them all in detention for having their phones out. And um, so all five of them from all different walks of life are in detention together. And then all of a sudden, um, there's an accident in the school parking lot. The teacher leaves the room to go make sure that nobody's hurt. And while she's out, one of the students drops dead Hmm. in the middle of the detention. And they know that it was somebody in the room who did it. And it goes from there and it becomes massive. Like the town gets involved. They start calling them like the, the, the detention four or something like that. Um, and it's all just kind of about, and this, the kind of unraveling of who did it and why. And what I liked most about this is that the book shifts perspectives. So it'd be kind of like breakfast club. If we started as like following around Emilio Estevez's character, but then midway through we switched to John Bender's character and saw the exact same things over, but saw them through a different character's eyes. Rashomon. Um, yeah, it's very Rashomon. It is Rashomon. very Rashomon. And so it's Rashomon in Breakfast Club with a killer. Okay. And apparently I was super late. This has already been ordered by Peacock for a full like television run. Okay. Um, so that's coming to Peacock soon. And this author has gone on to write a whole bunch of sequels to the book. Um, so there you go. I'm super late to the party on this one, but it was really a nice tight little, I'll call it like addictive murder mystery where like for, I was listening to the audiobook, um, but for like five days, it's all I wanted to do was, well, I'm just like folding laundry audiobook on. Um, I was just so kind of enraptured with it. So yes. Now, Sundance. Sundance. Okay. So yes, you normally I wouldn't get to Sundance and I didn't go as a journalist. So if you're sitting there going, oh, you're elitist. No, I paid 15 bucks for every one of these movies and you could have too. It was open to anyone. And I only did it because I had a friend, uh, you know, one of my best friends in the world had his film there. So I was like, okay. And then I realized another person I knew. So suddenly I was like, cool, I'll watch some stuff. So let me go through them quickly. And I promise I'm going to make them brief. Uh, because, Science auto. Uh, do you want me to start there? I don't think you do. Let me build to. Oh, science. God. Uh, oh, God. Uh, yeah. <sighs> uh, okay. First one was the uh, the one that worried me. Uh, was called Censor uh, by Prano Bailey Bond. It's based on a short film. I had seen uh, her short, which is pretty abstract, um, a couple years ago on the same topic. But this is about it recreates kind of the uh, Britain of the ni- uh, the nineteen eight mid nineteen eighties where the film censors are banning uh, the video nasty list, mm-hmm. and it's so it's a really cool setting. The first half I loved and felt like a Peter Strickland, like the guy did Barbarian Soundscape. It has that vibe. And then the second half just goes a lot more, I felt, schlocky. The idea is still there. I just didn't really like the direction this film took. Um, I think it might be, in some ways, it might be more popular with some horror fans because it's just maybe a little bit more uh, fun and A to B, but it started as something kind of heady and really interesting about the responsibility of banning and like taking notes on these these works of art. And then basically this girl had, had suffered a trauma where her sister had gone missing when they're young and she starts to kind of think she's seeing them in a, in a director's work and she wants to kind of investigate that further. And it kind of, so it's almost like hardcore, you know, mm-hmm. um, but done in the censorship office. So it has a Turn lot. To, off. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's my daughter. Oh my God. Uh, I think this one will be it, watching it. I was just like, this is going to hit shutter so hard. Like I think shutter would be a great place for him. People will dig it. Um, but I didn't love it, but but I think it'll, it'll do well. Um, one I did dig, um, Ben Wheatley has a nice, I think, return to form. A movie I called. love Ben Wheatley. Yeah, and he's been hit or miss lately. You know, he's taken a couple swings. Like um, he just did Rebecca, which I'll never watch in my lifetime. His adaptation for Netflix just looks very hollow. But um, 
but I, you know, Kill List is one of my favorite movies. So this one's called In the Earth, and it's it was the other cool thing about um, these films where they had Q and A's right after them, and it was all done live, and everything's remote, and so it, it was cool. And so he was jumping on there, and he said, "Look, the pandemic hit two weeks into it. I realized I'd probably get super depressed if I didn't do anything for the next year." And so we got a group together, we got money from Neon, and we made this movie. And and so this entire thing is made during COVID, and it's set in the wilderness, and it's like set in a world where they're not really talking about COVID, but COVID, something like that has clearly happened. Um, they're all wearing masks when they show up to this forest. And then this guy is going to go deep in the forest to go look for a doctor who's kind of gone missing. It's a little bit like Annihilation, but low, a little bit more lo-fi. Um, mm-hmm. And they get uh, him and this one other girl. They're basically on this mission to get in there and you know do this work. Um, as they go in there, they run into somebody called Reese Shearsmith, who you know because he is I your love favorite show. Reshu- he's also the creator and yes, the writer. And he's and he's very good episode. in this. You're going to like him. Inside number nine. Inside number nine. And he's fantastic in this. He is uh, not the person you want to run into in a forest in this. It gets pretty menacing. Um, and they eventually find there's him and this and his what turns out to be somebody related in the forest who's the doctor. And they both have different approaches. But he is basically um, believes there is some deity in the forest that they need to make a sacrifice of some kind to. And the other person is much more of the scientific approach, but both of them believe there is something in this forest that has a, a kind of a living um, ancient entity of some kind. So it's basically goes from almost a science, lo-fi science forest movie to a British uh, folk horror film. Um, and I liked it a lot. It has some trippy stuff in it too. Um, I think it was just for me, it was just nice to see something gritty. The performances are all really good. I dug it. I, I think it was, I think it was a cool movie. Um, I've seen, you know, mixed reviews so far, but I, I thought it was really good. Um, next one I saw was called Coming Home in the Dark. This is uh, by director James Ashcroft, who I was the best man at his wedding. So I can't <laughs> say much. Uh, I, I can't say anything negative. I lived with him for years and he's cooked me many great meals. Um, it turns out when he did the, uh, it was the best feeling I've had in a long time. He did his Q&A right after. And the first line out of his mouth was thanking me because apparently I'd forgotten this. I gave him the short story this was based on and had no memory that I did that many years <laughs> ago. And I was like, oh, did I? Okay, cool. Because this is a famous short story from New Zealand. Very bleak, very much like Flannery O'Connor's um, A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's very dark um, in, in terms of the source materials, like a 10-page story I read when I was like 16. He took that and added a whole political kind of New Zealand subtext of what's happened, uh, what happens to kids who are put into... Um, uh, kind of not orphan homes to schools that had a lot of abuse in the 80s in New Zealand. And he kind of takes all this as a blender and it's just a family's picnicking and two two bad dudes just wander upon them and decide to take make their life a living hell and then uh, get them in a car and are driving them somewhere. And a lot of it's in the car. It is tense. It is Michael Haneke mixed with- I was going like, to say, it sounds like noir. funny games. Yeah, but without the self-referential stuff. So it's a lot bleaker. Wow. But um, the fun thing, it's really hard to talk about because it's, it's it's like I'd call it one note, but in the way where one note is played so well, because I think of Haneke that way sometimes too. It's mm-hmm. one consistent note that's it has humor and other other levels, but it, it's so it's like you need to breathe afterwards. It, it, the opening of this movie, that I'm not going to give it away, but if anyone looks it up, it will probably be given away. It has a very bleak, dark thing that happens in the first like 15 minutes that sets the tone of what you're going to get, and it never really lets up. But um, Daniel Gillies, um, who uh, is the one of the stars of Vampire Diaries. He is um, he's one of the like ancients who then went into a show called The Originals. He is a guy I knew came in from for Jump Cut one day back in the day. And um, I told James when he's here, you got to meet him. So we pulled him in for this and he cast him in this film. And 
it's going to change this guy's i mean this guy has like four million followers on instagram and stuff he's got a huge following but this just shows such a different side of that actor it's a really dark really kind of charming even though it's a bad bad guy kind of role um so that's coming home in the dark i i I know it's going to get a release of some kind i just don't know when um but obviously you know i obviously have can't say enough good things about it and i'm very proud um of james for that one um he's he's been in many of my films james is an was an actor too so he's i he he's acted in anything i've made in the past so it's i met him at at the jason Jason, uh kane hodder okay yeah that was it and that's when he came to cast so he was casting that movie on that oh wow okay very cool so from then to then as this whole movie has happened so um you know one point someday will be fun to grab him on if he's ever in town um then another person who i met um a couple years ago after we were doing the shows through on scream tv shows john karna uh his friend who's also the one of the stars of scream we had him on the show yeah, John's awesome, yeah. and he he introduced me once to, uh, to a screening with Carlson Young, uh, who was also one of the stars of the show. And she, you know, she started watching really cool movies. She was watching Suspiria and Possession, just getting into real cinema. And then one day, I just heard she had made a short. And now she was making a feature, so she turned her short of the Blazing World into a feature of it. And the short had been at Sundance, I guess. And this is it. Kind of reminds me of like um, Lords of Salem, not in style, not exactly, but in terms of like somebody's taken like a ton of their references and very overtly. Not not trying to hide it, just being like, these are the things I love. I'm going to put it all in this one framework and it's going to become something different. So the word phantasmagoria kept coming to mind as I was watching. It's quite surreal. It's basically a girl who whose younger sister died in a pool accident when she was young and she's kind of depressed and maybe even suicidal. It's coming home to her parents' house and it, then it unlocks. It has like Dermot Mulroney and stuff, but it basically becomes kind of an Alice in Wonderland type story where she goes through this uh, surreal hole and then has to go through all these different uh, kind of subworlds around the house, but the person who's luring you into the subworld is Udo Kier, and Ooh. he's very well used in this. I think he's very good in this; like he's very menacing and feels like a fairy tale character. Um, so it's interesting. I think it's been fairly polarizing, like between people like just going, "This doesn't work for me at all," because I don't like the way it's treating you know the the, the subject to uh, people being blown away by it because it is a vision, it is a bold vision. Whether you like mm-hmm. whether someone likes that or not, I still I think I need to still watch it on a screen because you know. I watched this one on a computer. And so I, at some point I'd like to see it, but I'm proud of her as well. She uh, came out swinging with something really, you know, unique. So that's really cool. That's great. And then the last one, which is, you know, the, what could go wrong? You've got uh, one of the best directors in the world, Sion Sono, uh, one of the most bonkers directors in the world, I should say, with the most bonkers actor on earth, Nicolas Cage. Uh, put those two things together and you cannot possibly go wrong. But for me, it didn't work at all. And that's... Oh, uh, now, that said... I watched it uh, with a couple people, Prisoner of Ghostland, uh, and uh, it was uniform that it felt like it has a couple, bo- has some bonkers stuff, some really funny out loud, like King uh, Cage moments and some some really beautiful stuff, but also just felt kind of like a bit of a mess. It's got a lot of pastiche between the samurai film, the Western, post-apocalyptic. So, And sometimes that can be fun. There's parts of this I found quite dull, which is just crazy with these two at the helm. Um and Bill Mosley's really good. Uh, he kind of steals it from me. Bill Mosley is like the main kind of bad guy who basically has to hire Cage, who's been in jail, to uh, rescue his granddaughter. Uh, and he's wearing like a white suit, a cowboy hat, and white boots. Is Bill Mosley's character? And he's t- and he talks very much like he would in Texas Chainsaw Two. And you know, Yasujiro is a you know pretty popular Japanese name. And in this, he keeps saying all the way through, it's like a sidekick, Yasujiro. <laughs> and every time he says it, I kind of chuckle to myself. But um, he puts Nicholas Cage in an escape from L.A. situation or escape from New York situation where he's in a 
suit that has little blowing up parts all over and it has two, two on the testicle. So if he does anything wrong, a testicle thing will blow up, one on the neck, one on the arm. And uh, you can just imagine that there is uh, some of the funniest things you'll ever see. It, that's the thing. It's got a couple of the funniest scenes of the year. It's just as a movie for me, it did not work. Now that said, I'm seeing some four-star letterboxes and then the group I was with were kind of like two stars. So big big gap. And I'm a fan of Sono, so it's not like I don't like the stuff I've seen. I do. So, um, you know, I don't know. I don't want to put people off because it's Nick Cage and a Sono movie. Yeah, I'm still going to watch it because he is like, I I can't say that like he's my favorite director, like in like a Kubrick sense, but but like um, he makes, I love watching his movies like Strange Circus um, is actually quite beautiful. I know you still need to see Strange Circus tag, um, just Tokyo Vampire, like, and just everything that this guy does. I'm just like, the one I've always wanted to see is three hours. Love exposure. I've always heard is like a total masterpiece and I've had it on my shelf for a long time, but it's three hours. Mm -hmm. So I just haven't seen it yet, but yeah, I've had that on my queue forever. I've never we'll do sat down to watch it because it's three hours. But, you know, again, all of these were, I didn't want to go, pardon me, too deep because these are all things that we don't know when you're going to see them yet because, you know, yeah. you played at a fest. I, I, you know, I'm sure all those will come out, but it was still, it was cool. And I got to say, it's a, it's a, if you're a filmmaker, or an up and coming uh, person interested in this stuff, these kind of things are good to go to because you just kind of realize like eh, it takes the shield down from where you feel like you don't belong a little when you're mm-hmm. watching it in your house. You start going, oh, it's just work. It's just films. It's not some exclusive thing that it's always felt like if you're not in Sundance, you're not in Sundance. And yeah. I thought, so for me, it was healthy in that way. I, I, I enjoyed the process of doing this. Um, that's cool. Fantastic. Well, shall we go to our night flight pick for the night? It's back. Night it's flight. back, guys. So we used to do this on um, some of our other podcasts where we would, um, we love the streaming channel Night Flight. And so we would uh, select one of their titles to discuss occasionally. And so this week we are going to discuss Night Flight is currently playing Hello, Mary Lou, prom night two, um, which we decided to pick because it is also on the cover of Fangoria with an absolutely fantastic article about the film, a couple of articles about the film, but there's a damn good one in there um, by Michael Verratti. But um, Hello, Mary Lou, I remember seeing this. I cannot tell you anything about the first prom night but i can tell you so much about hello mary i actually watched the first one for the first time in a long time pretty recently and it was better than i remembered but it is not doesn't hold a flame at all to mary lou which is just utter surrealism and fun and it's really one of the fun most fun sequels i think there's so many and i mean it's all practical of course because it is 1987 um directed by bruce Pittman. but there are so many sequences in that like nightmarish sequences that almost kind of rival nightmare on elm street like there's one particularly where they're in a classroom and all of a sudden the letters are swirling around and then the whole chalkboard turns to like liquid um and And she falls into into a pool yeah that's a great yeah, it's such a great nightmare scene. Um, Hello, Mary Lou. This is one that did not get a lot of love for a long time. It also didn't get a great release. Like it was stuck on VHS forever. Um, so I love that it is finally getting some love long afterwards. Yeah. So unlike the first, uh, all you really need to know, unlike the first film, which is a straight slasher film, this is a possession film, uh, much more uh, exorcist style. And then Michael Ironside is a principal in this, which is fun. It's uh, like exploitation. I'm pretty sure it was shot in Canada. And it's just a great girl who was in the 1960s uh prom queen 1950s 
57, I think. Something like, yeah, the, she's prom queen, but uh, somebody jealous starts a fire. She burns to death. And now her spirit is possessing the girl who might be <clears> the <throat> new prom queen and craziness and murder ensues. And it's just, if you haven't seen it, you'll, you'll thank us. Uh, it's one that I think when you discover it, like, you know, especially like, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago when I saw it, you feel like you're the first person to have ever caught on how awesome it is. <laughs> and yeah. it's a very exciting thing. And now that it's on the cover of Fango, the whole world will know. So uh, yes. now's and the time to watch it. I will say, I may need to give it a rewatch. I don't hate Prom Night 3, The Last Kiss. It was problematic at part. It. Hmm. It's meta. That's okay. all I can remember is it's like a real meta slasher. I need to rewatch I it before I- I fourth too. I've, I have not seen- yes, The Last Kiss is the last one I saw. Yes. And I need to rewatch it before I give it like a glowing endorsement. I just remember thinking that there was something <laughs> about it. Like it w- there were some problems, but there was something about it that I was like- there's there's something here that's almost good. Um, but anyways, right now you can watch Prom Night 2, Hello Mary Lou on Night Flight. Night Flight Plus is a streaming channel available on Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and online. The channel is the only place to watch original episodes of the iconic 80s cult series Night Flight, as well as an eclectic collection of cult films, music documentaries, midnight movies, concert films, and more. Our cult collection includes titles from Arrow, Blue Underground, Severin, and Something Weird. Night Flight Plus is a treasure chest of weird oddities and hidden gems, so start digging. Subscriptions are $4.99 a month or $39.99 a year. But for a limited time, Colors of the Dark listeners can save $10 on that annual membership with the promo code COLORS, just one word, COLORS. That is uh, taking it down to $2.50 a month. And trust me, $2.50 is well worth it to see Prom Night 2. Hello, Mary Lou. And somebody else who wrote a very good story about a prom is Mr. Stephen King. And we are going to be very lucky to do a bit of a podcast crossover uh, with the, the geniuses behind the King cast coming up right now. All right. So we are very excited uh, from the Fangoria Podcast Network, uh, the only other podcast on the network with us, uh, to we're, be we're joined. We're growing it. It will, it will grow. That wasn't a slight. I'm just totally, proud. We're getting there. Um, it's a crossover. Uh, it's our first crossover. Uh, we are excited to be joined from the KingCast, uh, Mr. Scott Wampler and Eric Bisbee. Welcome, guys. Hello. How's everyone doing? We're good. Hello, guys. Thank you so much for joining us tonight all the way from Texas. I know it's much later there. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, we are so excited to dig in on some Stephen King tonight. Yeah, totally. Yeah. We're, we're yeah, we, excited to be here. Well, we're going to find out who he is. Save a reveal here. Um, no, I mean, I guess we, I, we've been listening to the show and I think a lot of people have discovered it, but you never know. That's the fun thing about podcast crawfighters. Sometimes the audiences will be like, oh, I, we, we still hearing people from our old show discovering that we have a new show. <laughs> They're like, oh, I didn't even know you guys had a new show. So uh, I want to be able to at least initially introduce people who might not be familiar, how you guys came up with the concept of the King cast before we kind of chase the origins of your King loves. Sure. Eric? Uh, well, this was something, listen, I'd been, I, I spent many years uh, writing for a site called Ain't It Cool News, and I kind of broke my teeth there. And then for, for reasons that anybody can Google, I, uh, I, I left that site. Um, uh, you know, the short version is that my boss was a, a sex pest and, and, uh, and I left. And uh, so in the years since, I've been kind of doing the freelance thing and and uh, that's not as somebody who was in control of his own destiny for so long. You know, I was the 
the one making all the decisions on what to write on Ain't It Cool for for many years. And and uh, it's a little bit of a rough transition moving into freelancing because then you're not writing what you want to write. You're writing what other people want you to write. Um, so I, I knew that I wanted to do something that was a little bit more in my control. And I figured there were only a few things I could talk about with any kind of authority. And Stephen King was one of them. And, uh, I knew if I was going to do it though, I'd need uh, a partner in crime, uh, like Scott, who I also knew was a giant King fan and, uh, a you know. sexy partner in crime, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and there he's, uh, I'm, I tend to come off as a little bit more earnest and he, he definitely brings the sass, which I, which I love because nothing can be more boring than a, a, a just a straight earnest podcast. I think. Yeah, I think we we got ours wrong. We're both sass, unfortunately. I know we're <laughs> we all have nothing sass. earnest. We're, it's a problem. We talk over each other. We just argue constantly. That, that's all we got. That's the secret. You can be double sass. You can't be double earnest. That's that's something that's something that I've learned. Yeah. Had you guys worked together prior, like uh, just writing on sites together and hanging out? Austin was that the background? Uh, hang out, hang out. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we were aware of each other because. Um, you know, we were working the same industry for for so long, and you're living in the same city, so you see mm-hmm. people at screenings. And um, also, we were often working the same beats because, uh, you know, throughout my years with Birth Movies Death, I was the Stephen King guy, and Eric was the Stephen King guy wherever he was, you know? And so um, I think we were definitely aware of each other in that way. And then we went on a few, like... Uh, junkets together Mm -hmm. um and kind of became quick friends and and then one day he just uh asked me to meet him for lunch and then he pitched pitched me the idea of the show and i don't think there's anyone else i would have done this particular show with you know um for one thing i don't know how to edit a podcast (laughs) and and for another, um, I'm sure if you ask some of the iTunes reviewers, you, they'd probably uh, say that I don't know how to edit a podcast either. Oh, you can't listen to those mean boys. They don't mean it. <laughs> well, I don't. I'm just assuming they're there. Uh, who came up with the format, the structure of like looking at both the adapted material and the film or, you know, whatever hmm. the format tends to be. It's all Eric. Yeah, I think that that was the initial pitch was that, you know, it was that that would be interesting because I knew that we both had read a lot of King. And we were both big movie nerds, so we had both sides of the fence covered, essentially, already. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that a big thing that changed from early on is we we thought we were going to be very stringent with that structure. It's going to be first half of the podcast is all about the book, second half is all about the movie or TV mm-hmm. series or miniseries, whatever. Um, and uh, that changed, like, within the first two two or three recordings, mm-hmm. um, where we just realized it it is it's losing a lot of spontaneity and so much of the joy of the podcast is the random tangents we go on. Like we just posted one today. Uh, our episode today went up as a fire starter with Kate Siegel, uh, you know, from haunting Hill house yeah. and hush, uh, you know, great. She, she's a huge Stephen King nerd. Like she has so much great insight into King stuff. And uh, the first 10 minutes of the podcast is pretty much her uh, trying to convince Wampler to try poutine. <laughs> And, and, Wait, uh, and, why, why won't and you wa- eat poutine? I have taken a lot of uh, targeted harassment campaigns <laughs> and bullying about this today. And it's clear that, you know, people feel upset about some of the things that I said. But I maintain that I'm coming at this from a place of curiosity 
and and respect for, you, for Canada, its people, and its customs. You, and you realize it's cheese fries, right? You realize it's just cheese fries? Here is what I said. Okay. <laughs> what I said was, <laughs> I was like, I'm concerned about poutine. <laughs> because... <laughs> because um, I'm worried that the fries would be soggy. I was disabused of this notion very quickly. <laughs> and I was told that, you know, the top fries would be crispy, but then they get, so- it's like chili cheese fries. And I was like, yeah. all right, well, I'm, you know, I just don't like a soggy fry. So then the conversation moved into a conversation of soggy fries versus crispy fries. I maintain uh, with righteousness on my side that crispy fries are better. But then I got mocked for trying to deconstruct a, put- a poutine into some sort of hipster-based trash, uh, which <laughs> I also do not believe. And then um, I think that's about it, actually. Uh, I, I, I mean, like I end the conversation. I'm like, I'll try episode. it. I just don't like like mouthfeel and and texture for me with food is very important. That's like a thing I'm weird about. Um, so I don't want to sign up to eat a bucket of soggy fries soaked in gravy. Like it's going to be unbecoming, first of all, <laughs> and secondly, like it just feel like I'm not a, I'm not attracted to that idea. It sounds like a very heavy meal for no, a very heavy snack for no reason. Yeah. Right? It is it is a very heavy meal, and actually, um, when I was at Fantasia last time in Montreal, I ordered poutine at the movie theater just because oh, no. I wanted to see what yeah, it was like a, to eat poutine idea. at the movie theater. It was not a good idea. I may as well in have the to theater attack, in the theater, like on, like. Like, here's a bucket of popcorn. Here's your bucket of poutine. And um, I have to say, I am not a gravy person to begin with because I usually look at gravy as like gelatinous fat. Um, Like, it's just kind of like goo. And so I'm not like a really big gravy person to begin with. But then having it in my lap at the theater, I ate the entire like bucket of poutine myself. And um, like an hour after the movie ended, I was like, well, I'm done for the night, guys. This is, yeah. I an was hour later, you went into cardiac trouble. arrest. I, I like had to get a coronary. It was a whole thing. Um, but the cheese curds, the cheese right. curds are the best part because it's not like shredded cheese like we do here in the States. It's like lumps mm. of cheese and it's like a good sharp yeah. cheese. Um, but this is this is I think um, we should talk about thinner. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting me in the mood to talk to adaptation about your guests here. Elric. what are you saying? No, no, it's just it's all this food. It's um, okay. Well, people can hear the whole story. If that wasn't yes. a good enough, you yeah, can hear it on that episode. That's uh, the opening. No, that's like literally the opening fourteen minutes or so of the Firestarter episode. Is me arguing with Kate Siegel over whether or not to eat poutine. I did have a question um, about that. How do you guys like? Because um, I've you know I've listened to a number of them, and you've got hmm. all sorts of guests, and obviously their interest. It's great because you guys are jumping all over the map. It's not like you're hitting the big ones or avoiding the big ones. You're just hitting whatever. How do you? Did you guys have like a list of the guests? I know the guests pick the movies, but how do you even know who are king heads? You know, or what kind of king head, and that you're not going to hit right. tons of overlap. Yeah. How is how has that been going? And and would you do do overlap? Like if you had five great guests who all want to do the shining. Will you at some point let them yeah. and do different variations on it? Yeah. I Eric, mean, you want to take that one? Yes. It, it, it became evident real quick. We, at the very beginning, the kernel of this idea is like, Oh, that's fine. We'll, we'll assign people books. And then we quickly realized, even before we started asking people that the last thing in the world we want to do is assign somebody a, a 300 page homework thing to come on the show. And mm-hmm. uh, to, to the point, 
Yeah, no, no nobody would come, come on. Like uh, Elijah Woods is one of our higher profile, uh, you know, guests. He's well known and loved within the horror community. He's been a friend of mine for a very long time. He's never read a Stephen King book in his life, but he has a deep personal connection to Rob Reiner's misery. And and he had a lot to say about his own number one fans in his life and his crazy fan encounters. And so we realized real early on that it didn't really matter if people were re- well read on King. What mattered is they had a passion about what they were talking about, which then easily led into that means that they pick what is going to be discussed. Um, and our fear at the very beginning of this was that everybody would pick the same title. Everybody would want The Shining. Everybody would want Stand By Me. Uh, everybody would want the dead zone, you know, the, the, the big ones. Uh, but then the very first episode we recorded, it's not the first one we ran is with Michael Doherty. Uh, when I pitched him the idea, I'm like, I, you, I know you must be a Stephen King fan. What book would you want to cover? What topic would you want to cover if you came on a, a show about Stephen King? And he said, cycle of the werewolf. And that was a very early indicator that people's personal connections aren't just the big ones, uh, the big hits we we've recorded, uh, recently an episode on grandma, which is a short story that King King wrote and it was adapted into the, the eighties, hmm. um, twilight zone. Yeah. And so, you know, it, we find that the zone, more yeah. obscure it is, the more personal the connection is our guest on there has like a deep personal connection to his own grandma, you know, his own kind of creepy grandma voodoo story. He has, um, uh, you know, with that. And that just, it, it just, w- I don't know. It was just obvious. Once you started doing it, it was easier for the guest, and it was easier. It was better to listen to because nobody's approaching these episodes like, like okay, this is the homework I did for this, right? Because he's and such a gateway character, like right. So a lot of people's first gateway experience, whether it was catching saying on on TV or right. that first book they read, illicitly, it's like it really does shape you. Like that that forges something. It doesn't matter which one it is. Sometimes you know. Um, it's, it's it all, it also like, uh, just, just speaking, frankly, like you couldn't do this show and just do one episode per, you know, uh, Stephen King adaptation of which there are five or six dozen or something. Mm -hmm. Right. So by allowing the guests to pick and not assigning that homework, um, it's -hmm. those personal connections that make their episodes unique. So we can do The Shining however many times people want to do The Shining or Pet Cemetery or whatever. You know, it's going to the the final product is going to be completely different because it's all guest dependent. So, you know, we had Mallory O'Meara on uh, who wrote uh, uh, Lady from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, we were we were stuck in uh, um, where were we? Nashville, Nashville with her. On a delayed flight for yeah, we had we, we roamed Was that when you Nashville. rented an Airbnb? Yeah. 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 I there remember when hurricane. that happened. Yeah. There was yeah. a hurricane coming through. We were There's trying to leave Chattanooga Film Festival. Yeah. We got diverted to Nashville. The hurricane headed that or it was tornadoes headed that way. And then we got stuck in Nashville. So we were in an Airbnb for a while. It was it was a trip. But Ma- Mallory was with us. She's the best. Um a very uh, beloved guest on the show too. <laughs> um known for creating rowdiness wherever she goes. Um <laughs> And she came. She came on and did Pet Cemetery, and that episode. Um, I've known Mallory from for some years now, but the dynamic between us three in particular, there's something about it that works in a way where the show just goes completely off the rails. Hmm. 
And that's absolutely what happened on Mallory's Mad Cemetery episode. It is, you know, kind of unhinged by the end of it. Um, and then we had Anna Liliamapur on to do Pet Cemetery, and hers was, you know, all the shows are at least a little bit funny, but hers was far more somber, you know, in in tone, you know, and it became like sort of a a treatise <laughs> on the nature of, you know, dealing with death and becoming old, and you know, so same title, <laughs> two completely different approaches. Uh, <laughs> so theoretically, we may have to do this show until we are extremely old men and and dead in the ground. So what were your first like connections to King? Like what was it that first like really led you to him and, and gave you the spark? I, I think that, and this is a common thread that we've found with so many of our guests, especially people in our generation. I was born in 81, grew up in the eighties, you know, nine, early nineties were like my prime grow up time. And those are the best Stephen King covers are all mm-hmm. in that period. And my, I think pretty much everybody we talked to almost to the person, their parents read King cause he was just the popular person to read. So they had copies of these books around their house. And so, I mean, I, I know before I read it, I was obsessed with the covers of like misery and the stand with the, you know, with the Luke Skywalker looking dude fighting the dude in the plague mask, you know, you know, that has very little to do. Never happens in the book, by Never. the way. There's no, no <laughs> sign fights in the book. Um, yeah. And like Firestarter and Cujo is a big one. Like uh, Cujo is the first book that I read of Kings. Um, and I'm, mm-hmm. I know I've saw the movie before. Uh, I read the book because I was in sixth grade when I read the book. I remember that very clearly because I remember I would hide the book in my pencil box. It was just the right pa- size for my paperback. Um, and so I would read it during, you know, in between classes, then hide it like it's a big secret. Um, and when you read it now, you understand why I was maybe embarrassed to be reading that book in public. There's a whole lot of adultery and talk of uh, semen on bed sheets and stuff in that book. Um, that. And uh, which. So you were reading before? No, I think I saw it because uh, because uh, I figured in my. I remember clearly thinking in my mind, like, "Oh, I've seen the movie, so I'll be able to understand this book, this adult book, like this grown up book that's not scary stories Mm -hmm. to tell in the dark or whatever the hell I was reading at that time." So, um, uh, but yeah, so I I know that I I'm the movies were definitely first. I'm pretty sure I saw The Shining uh, early on. I know I saw it before I read the book. and uh, I think the miniseries, of course, it and the stand were both just huge pop culture events. You know, at that time, everybody was gathering their family around to watch it. So he's I've always been aware. I grew up on Stand By Me. That was one of my early favorite movies. Uh, I don't know how early I connected that to King, but, you know, just as a movie fan and they were all, you know, King's uh, hugeness in pop culture. They were always around the house. So what about you, Scott? Well, my mother read. Stephen King. And so uh, to echo something Eric said, you know, uh, the covers drew me in. I was a morbid kid. I liked monsters and and horror shit from a very early age. Uh, I read, you know, scary stories to tell in the dark. You know, that's my shit for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I read Christopher Pike. I read R.L. Stein before he went yeah, before I am so excited, Christopher Pike is making mm-hmm. some type of right. comeback via a Netflix something. I am just so hoping yeah. to God uh, it's it's done well. Well, I know. Yeah, they've got a and and I, you know, we <laughs> Eric, we need to talk to Mike about this, but 
you know, it's imperative that they they capture the horniness of Christopher Pike. You know, that's mostly what I remember about those books. Because, look, here's how the progression went. It was like scary stories to tell in the dark, which is just metal as fuck. And then it's got, you know, really creepy stories on top of it that kids should absolutely not be reading. Harold, like, come the fuck on now. You know, what's still shocking is like I will in even in my kids now in their um, bookcases, um, Al or the the guy who Stephen Gamal, the guy who did the artwork, mm-hmm. still illustrates kids' books. So I will just be like pulling stuff off their shelf, and I'll be like, "Oh my god, it's Stephen Gamal!" And like they still look exactly the same. They have one called Shoe Fly that is it's these like sticky, mm-hmm. gooey fly pictures of yeah, getting no, garbage no. all over the place, and they're still it's Stephen Gamal doing the exact same thing. Yeah, it's fun. But continue. Yes, metal as fuck. Just a funny side story about that guy. Um, I used to commission privately commissioned movie posters from artists and have them screen printed. And, uh, like I was, I was big into Mondo and all that shit for some years. And that was sort of like the, the next evolution of that hobby for me. And I, tr- I was trying to t- track him down for a while. I wanted him to do a poster of the thing or the fog, one mm-hmm. of those two. And, I reached out to friends I had in the publishing industry. I reached out to his current publishers, everybody. To this day, one of the few people I could not get a hold of, no matter what I tried. Um, I've gotten I've gotten a hold of people that one have won Oscars before I got in touch with this guy, which is insane. Like, was he whenever... in that documentary? I remember there was that. I have, yeah. Right okay. Yeah. Was he in that? I don't remember if he was. If he, appeared uh, I believe. I don't know. I don't think he is actually. But I don't know. Yeah, it's maybe, been a while. Right. It's been what, like four yeah. years since? Yeah, it's been years. Yeah. I mean, he's um, still definitely illustrating kids' books because I, yeah, I see him pop up pretty regularly. He's still working, but he's sort of like, you know, <laughs> black metal Bill Watterson or some <laughs> shit. You know, like he doesn't want to be found. Leave this old man alone. So <laughs> I, t- I took a hint. But anyway, you know, uh, so the progression was scary stories to tell in the dark. And then, you know, there was a period before. You know, who became the Goosebumps guy where uh, R.L. Stein was writing, you know, like why? Yeah, yeah. 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 Fear stuff was much older than Goosebumps was. Yes. But but, (laughs) crucial, not horny like the Christopher Pike works. And so I was reading all of those books and I was getting a little taste of black metal over here and a little taste of like straight up, you know, kind of all general audiences horror here and then christopher pike had this and then you found vc like, andrews and your idea of sexuality went completely you don't know so we <laughs> flowers in the attic and then i just got really confused and yeah, yeah. um i re- <clears throat> i have vivid memories and i mean i have not read it since i was probably in sixth grade but christopher pike's chain letter where she reaches yes, into her mailbox yes. and she pulls out, I think it's a doll's head, but it's covered in red goo. And I remember reading that and just being like, oh God, this is just awful. I can't wait to keep reading it. Um, but yeah, Chain Letter, I absolutely, there was one about a dead boyfriend. I remember reading those movies. I think those most of them had a dead phenomenal. boyfriend, to be fair. To be I, fair. I, it's, 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 you know, sixth grade. Dead boyfriends. I'm in. Dead boyfriends, vengeful dead teachers, and the like. 
you know, yes. maybe a maybe a creature from time to time. But but know. those books definitely felt dangerous. And I was reading the Goosebumps books at the time period. I definitely was reading like R.L. Stein, but the Christopher Pike books were kind of next level. They did have this danger to them um, that it felt much different than a lot of the other YA horror at the time period. Right. Well, so, I had read all this shit. I was intrigued by the books my mother had sitting around the house, but. You know, and we're talking about me very young, like seven to nine years old, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I've probably given varying ages over the course of our show because <laughs> I can't honestly remember. But I was very young, right? And then my parents went out of town to Hawaii for a couple of weeks. They left me in in uh, the care of my grandparents. And my grandmother brought a copy of uh, Eyes of the Dragon with her and was reading it. And it's like a fairy tale thing. So mm-hmm. somehow or another, uh, I either convinced her or she offered to, you know, read it out loud to me at bed at night. And so she read Eyes of the Dragon to me. And, you know, by that point, like, well, now I've read a Stephen King book technically. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a hop, skip and a jump to my parents letting me read King. And then I started watching the movies. And then it was just like a lifelong sort of. You know, you you become a fa- like a hardcore fan mm-hmm. of a thing, and it's just like, well, you know, like some people follow fucking Pearl Jam or, or Fish or whatever. You know, um, you find the thing you love, and then you stick with it. And and I did. I don't know your Becca, but your origin with King. I, I've done this for eight years <clears throat> with you, and I don't think I've ever heard what you started with. What like do you remember your? It first- was yeah, it was always my, it was the same thing. It was my mom's books. I mean, my mom was an avid reader, still is. She still just burns through stuff. Um, and she had, uh, much like I do in my living room now, she had an entire wall that was just bookcases um, from from one side to the other um, of our like big, like think like 80s style basement where it's been like renovated and they put up bad paneling. We had an entire wall that was just bookcases. <clears throat> and my mom was sci-fi first and foremost. She still is like a diehard Trekkie. Um, so we had like, I, I have vivid memories of everything that Mandy is based off of, like yeah. all of those covers that look like Molly Hatchet album covers. Yes, yes, yes. We had every single one of those on our shelves. A lot of like the Gary Gygax novels, I remember. Um, but then she also had all of King, all of Dean Koontz. And I know your feelings on Teen Coons. Um, I kind of enjoy it. He's a little sleazy. But um, I remember the King cover specifically. Mm-hmm. And then I remember even before I got really into King, even by high school, I was Barker. Like, And and to this day, like if I have to pick one, I am a completionist with Barker. I have read every single one of his items that I can get my hands on. Um, and I was that way in high school, too. Like I was reading most of um, Barker's early works by the time I was in high school. King, I actually didn't start reading until later. Um, but I have vivid memories of when Desperation came out. I know it had to be fall of, I'm going to say, 1996 because I have vivid memories of the day it came out, my mom sent me to the Walden Books one town over because we didn't have a, um, it was like a, a drive at the time. And I remember I was wearing my cheerleading uniform because I had just left cheerleading practice, but she had to have it on the day that it came out. So I have vivid memories of like it being a thing in our house. Like I had to go get it for her on the day that it came out. Like she had to have it that day. Um, and she still has that copy from like 1990 something or another. Um, so yeah, it was, but always growing up with those. And then I saw the movies really young too, probably 
way too young to even fully understand like who Stephen King was and that they were all connected. Like I remember seeing Cujo and Firestarter, <clears throat> probably fifth grade, sixth grade. Um, definitely The Shining was part of it by seventh grade. And so my, I don't think, I definitely didn't read King before I saw King. Um, and somewhere yeah, I'm in sure our generation, that must be the norm, right? Like that it's the breadcrumbs, yeah. the films were the breadcrumbs to, oh, that's him too. Like you were saying, now it's safe for me to give that a try. Yep. The re- I mean, I, I was showing Creepshow <laughs> at five. Uh, it's like the defining like movie for me because it was like some guy was dating my mom. To- must have been a total scumbag. Um, but he was she was out and he just yelled upstairs. Um, and I think it was from VCRs were pretty early. And he just yelled, oh, Little House on the Prairie's on. Come down. And we ran down the stairs and he closed the door and he put something in the video. And, it, and, I, and for about eight or so years, I didn't know what it was. Like I've been trying. I had I had flashbacks of this like basically you know uh fluffy um you know and it was all that it was all that one story the crate that it really got under my skin for years like i was right. you know kid nightmares and then it wasn't to like the shining on on tv mm-hmm. that when i was like eight or nine where i i loved it i it was like an empowering watch not yeah. a not a scared of it and then i started reading stuff too so it is just funny which whatever is patient you know zero for you. It's, it's always fascinating yeah, I have, I remember finally reading um for uh, the one with the hand and the eyeballs night shift. Um yeah, night shift. Uh yeah, with the gauze. I remember reading that when I was in high school. Um and cuz I re- I still have vivid memories of some of the stories including the original lawnmower man um right. which I'll talk about. But uh, yeah, like yeah. there there's some of those that like have truly like haunted me. But I say that's the first one that I actually sat down and like read cover to cover. But I was going through all of Clive Barker's short stories at the time period, so I'd become like obsessed with horror short stories. Um yeah. And I, I can also I, I, oh, I, I just want to add that I, I, I like Barker too a lot. <clears throat> um in my mind, Steven Spiel or excuse me, Stephen King is sort of the Steven Spielberg of horror literature like yep. pop horror literature yeah. and barker is more like lars von trier you know mm-hmm. and so and one, one is of our world and the other is, seems to be other worlds like you yeah know. totally totally but a, a barker like what i've read which is maybe a quarter of his work maybe a third something like that uh i love weave world a lot mm-hmm. uh the the world building in that is insane uh oh, his yeah. world his world building in general is insane um but thief of always is my favorite cloud. oh god that is one of those um and i know you guys probably get this question like what's the one thing that you would love to see made to a movie and we're even going to talk about that in a bit um and thief of always is always my answer and that it's been optioned so many times and yeah brought it to fruition last i, I heard it was like story. gonna be an animated thing and then that mm-hmm. fell apart like dreamworks maybe yep yeah. and i've heard so the same thing with um arabat like or not yeah. arabat, um, well shit. disney had and that chica yeah um so yeah and the one with uh all the islands and candy quackenbush and everything it was supposed to be a disney tv show and then that completely fell apart and yeah, it's just, I wish we saw more Barker brought to screen um, on the big scale. I mean, like we got the Books of Blood this year, but I, I want it to be massive um, right. and things that other yeah. than 
laser. Well, it does, and that ties it does tie back to King though, because I know you guys even mentioned on one of the episodes, but it's it's how I learned about Barker. It's probably how most of us was is King's quote led us to find out who was Clive Barker because he mm-hmm. said, "I've seen the future of horror," and so instantly we're like, "Okay, the guy who is horror just said this guy is worth us looking at," and that back you know pre-internet main an endorsement like that actually you know forced you to go find it's- out who he was. It's kind of incredible, and it speaks to his power because he didn't just do that for authors. He did that for filmmakers. Hmm. You know, Sam Raimi, in part, owes his career to Stephen King right. uh, right. blessing Evil Dead and giving them a quote for the poster. Was that called the world of that documentary, the world of horror thing, the Stephen King's world of horror? I think that was one of the, there was a documentary on that. That was one of the first things I that's how I found Evil Dead. Like I remember yeah. watching that; it was on TV or something, and yeah. I saw a clip and I, of Evil Dead too. I was like, I need to see that thing. Yeah, this so, is yeah, horror, right. right? Is that yeah? Is there... This is horror, something like yeah, that. Something yeah, like that. is that the one we did an episode with Todd on? Yeah, we did a, a Patreon episode. Okay. Uh, the... I'd almost forgotten about it until you just mentioned. Yeah, it. yeah I don't remember the Evil Dead one, but we you only saw meant... like we. There's only like a, a few hours of the like twelve hours that that they did on that thing that you can easily find. On oh yeah, no, sorry, I meant he meant he said the rainy thing and it triggered. Oh, like. Fuck. There was well, I think Yeah, there's there's more there's right. more than what we saw there. But um Oh interesting. Jesus Christ. But yeah, no, that's yeah. that was like it was <laughs> Todd Todd Gilchrist came to us very excited with this concept for a bonus episode and was like this MTV documentary from like the early nineties mm-hmm. and it's called Stephen King's This Is Horror. It was very important to me uh as a child <laughs> and like you know, he's sort of explaining it. I was like, I'm right. You know, that's a that's a good angle for a, a bonus ep. And then we watched it and it's like Stephen King is in it for all of about 30 seconds. And then it's just a documentary on other <laughs> filmmakers who are, who are great. I think we saw. Uh, it was, who was it Argento, Argento and, making uh, phenomena, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots oh, of that's awesome. Scenes, which is crazy. Yeah. It was, it, but the interviews yeah. were so, were so surface. Yeah, it had all the symptoms of an early 90s. Right. But the interviews were so but, surface level. We uh, even joked but, about it in our Patreon but, episode where like they interview Argento on the set of Phenomena and he's just like, hey, yes, yeah, so the, the blood and I like the heads and the blood or something. And then they cut to him making something. It's just like, what? <laughs> yeah. it's like, and it has nothing to do. They have like, it, my theory is that they interviewed Stephen King for about 30 minutes and then they just chopped up every one of his answers yep, totally. as an intro to a, a new thing and uh, so he would be like yeah <laughs> i like skeletons yeah. blah 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 or something and then we're like now let's look at the cohen's is blood simple you know it had nothing to do with each other it was so crazy <laughs> yeah mtv was like steven we're gonna we're gonna cut this thing to ribbons and you're gonna be on the network for the next <laughs> 13 years or so <laughs> but again i remember stephen king was in a like a was a mastercard commercial like where he was in like a haunted house and it was like lightning outside and he was selling what? you yeah he was selling you like a mastercard yeah I, it's incredible wow. there's no other author Holy i can shit, think of even like jk rowling you know which uh you know uh uh, she she is taking a dive in, in popularity for good reason recently, but you know in terms of her, you know her status, you know she's maybe the only other person I can think of that that kind of hit that high. That's that Stephen King. She could have started her own commercials, and people would have been like, "Holy shit, yeah, I know her." Yeah, and he did cool things like letting himself be accessible with like the one dollar short films right. and stuff of his work. The and I'd love to find a way to see a lot of yeah. those. You know, it's 
I know some of the bigger ones like Darabon and people like you can see some of those, but there's, you know, over the years, it's probably, it could be a little festival or something. Yeah. Um, I would think so. Yeah. Cause even just like in festivals, like us going around to festivals, I've probably seen 20 right. of them. Yeah. No, they, they've um, yeah. people have asked um, us to do, well, we, to do episode, an episode on dollar babies. Like I don't even know where to start. Yeah. There's so many and, and they're so hard to find because part of the, the contract you have to sign with King is that you don't distribute the the short. Like you can go to festivals, yeah. but you know, I don't think a lot of them can even make it online without pissing off King. Oh, yeah. And I know that for a couple of the ones that I've seen um, that, you know, there were rumor afterwards that they were going to film, right. that they were going to be features, um, which was always the whole point of them. And then I was disappointed when they didn't. It was actually, Elric, I think you may have been with me. There was one, and I can't even remember which King story it was about the guy on the island with all the cocaine who eats Survivor himself. type. Survivor type. Survivor type. Thank you. Um, and I remember seeing one, it was like a 20 minute version of survivor type at one of the festivals, probably 10 years ago. And I remember afterwards hearing that it was like going to be a feature and then nothing happened, but yeah. Um, there's a couple on film. We saw at the, at jump cut back in the day. I remember, uh, Mike had Frank Darabont's and this other one that had a closet, I think. Um, I can't remember what it was. Mm -hmm. Oh, boogeyman. The Boogeyman one was a, mm -hmm. was a really good one. So they're, they're out there, some of them. Um, but we wanted to do something. To, I mean, obviously, you know, if you want to hear more of the interviews, obviously go to the show because there's tons of really just I was scrolling the ones I hadn't heard. And there's so many interesting guests on on films that maybe you wouldn't um, right. that wouldn't have been your first guest when you think about like their filmographies or comedians and things like that. Um, we wanted to do a couple different things. So as we, you guys wouldn't have to just repeat yourself, hopefully it won't be <laughs> completely repetitive. Uh, we wanted to start just with uh, we kind of love to point people to like the yeah, underrated or maybe less talked about gems. Uh, so we figured let's all pick one uh, for starters, a film uh, adaptation that, that you are of Stephen a King. fan of. Yes. Yep. Yes. A Stephen King film, ad right. film adaptation. That's like a lesser known one or one that's polarized. How do we want to do it? Do we want to do it like in Brady Bunch order where Rebecca goes first and then me and I oh, think, I think, all our, I think all our screens are different. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's true. Well, I'll kick off. Um, yeah. So I actually had a different one up until last night. And then Elric and I were talking on the phone and I said something about Secret Window. And then Elric was like, I've never seen Secret Window. And I was like, it's so good. And then I realized that I should do that one. Um, because as I was defending it to him and why he had never seen it, because he thought that John Tutoro was- <laughs> It was the trailer. Guy. The trailers with John Tutoro's accent. I was like, I can never watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He has a big kind of like, you know, Job yeah, from like it was a children of the corn hat. Like yeah. 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 And, um, <laughs> but I have always had a fondness for this one and so much so that I watched it again last night just to make right. sure I wasn't like feverishly dreaming 2004 where I thought it was really tight. Um, I've always liked the setup for this, that it is a writer who is already going through some shit. He's got a drinking problem. He's getting a divorce from his wife. Um, there's a lot of backstory there where he caught her in bed with another guy and apparently he pulled a gun and like threatened mm -hmm. to kill him, but didn't actually do anything. Um, but there's a lot of like, you know, could he have been capable of killing somebody? Well, he's now living in a, a lovely cabin in the woods on the lake by himself while his wife has their old house. And one day he is outside walking and this guy approaches him and just mm. starts screaming, you stole my book. Mm. And Johnny Depp's character is like, what? No, I wrote this. And he's like, no, you stole it. And he hands him a manuscript mm. and the manuscript is almost exact. And then Johnny Depp is like freaking out going, I, I don't even know where I could have gotten this from. I have no idea. And so he hunts down 
the first time he ever published the book, which was, or it's a short story, Secret Window is the name of the short story, which is in this magazine back like 20 years before that um, isn't even in publishing anymore. So he's having to really hunt to find it to prove to this guy. But in the meantime, this guy played by John Turturro starts going crazy. He kills his dog. And that's just like in the, the very first mm-hmm. moments, it gets a lot worse. And so Johnny Depp is essentially being stalked by this man, assisting that he was plagiarizing him. And I won't take it past there for um, so that you it's can enjoy it for yourself. Is this but based on a short story? It's in. This is based on. What song yeah, is it's in novella. novella. Four past um, midnight. I wrote yeah. it down. Secret window. Secret four past floor. midnight. Is yeah. And I. Yeah, yeah. Secret window, secret garden. Yeah, because right. the name of. The book okay. that Totoro's character is claiming he wrote is okay. called like Secret yeah. Garden, but what Depp published was Secret Window. Um, so it, it's like slight differences, but they're still the same thing. The only thing that's really, really different in both of the, the versions is the ending. Uh, and that's one of the things that Totoro keeps insisting is you fucked up my ending. Um, and so that becomes like a sticking point of it. It's but an insane I, movie. It's yeah, insane it is. Movie. And it's 90% of this movie is Johnny Depp by himself. Like, I don't think we ever gave him credit in any capacity for what a good performance he has in this movie. And I know that Johnny Depp is currently problematic, but I'm definitely not one to cancel movies by any stretch. And I'm damn sure not canceling Nightmare on Elm Street. So secret window holds. Um, So, but his performance in this is, it's really outstanding. Um, And so I love this because I remember seeing it in 2004 and thinking it was really tight and watching it again last night. It was like next level for me because suddenly, I mean, like as a writer, especially like talking to screenwriters, one of your biggest fears is that you are writing something that somebody else has already written that you might not even like having interviewed a bajillion screenwriters. The one thing that you never want to hear is, oh yeah, I wrote this movie. And then somebody go, oh, it's just like, and then like your heart sinks And so having somebody show up and be like, you stole my story. I mean, like it was watching it last night. You could see the fear and the anxiety. And it really did feel like this stern accusation because you were watching Johnny Depp say, I didn't take this. I have no idea. But, you know, how do you even fight that? So it was a real trippy thing. Um, So why did this one not do well? So I started looking at like what was going on in cinema when this film came out. So this was early 2004. So right around that same time period, we have two veins of horror happening. We have all of the kind of um, quiet, art dread um, Asian films that are coming out. So we have Shudder, we have Grudge, um, The Ring comes out just a year prior. And then we also have this really, really extreme visceral in your face, right? As the same year, right? Within a couple of months of Secret Mm -hmm. Window coming out, we have Saw, House of a Thousand Corpses, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot. So we have these kind of two veins of thought and Secret Window is just this weird little psychological horror of watching Johnny Depp go crazy the whole movie. And so it didn't do well. And even looking back at the the critical rankings, they were very much like, I don't know about this. It's just Johnny Depp going crazy for a whole movie. Um, But that said, it's something very smart about it. I I rather enjoyed it. Yeah, you're you're talking about it makes me want to revisit it because I like I remember watching it and not liking it very much. But then again, I wasn't a huge fan of the novella either. Um, But, you know, you putting into that context makes me want to go back and give it another shot. Um, So let me get get this, the the rules here. Is it a movie or any adaptation? 
any yeah, I think anything that you think doesn't get enough love. All right. Well, there's one, and it's something that uh, I wouldn't probably be aware of if we hadn't done the King cast because it was something a guest picked that I didn't, frankly, know existed. And it was a an episode of the TNT series Nightmares and Dreamscapes called Battleground. Um, and I remembered the story, and I had vague recollection, recollections in my head of maybe seeing some clips from this. But Battleground is uh, an hour of TV directed by Brian Henson, Jim Henson's son. Uh, wow. And voice of Hoggle, by the way. Um, he, he directed this hour of television starring William Hurt as an assassin that opens the movie by completing a job. He kills a toy maker. Uh, it's the beginning of, of the movie. And then he gets back to his like New York penthouse apartment that's pristine and like just, you know, bare and, you know, beautiful. And, and there's a package waiting for him and it's a box of little green army men. And those little green army men come to life and try to kill him. And so it's an assassin in a penthouse uh, being attacked by little green army guys that have real their weapons are shooting like real bullets even but they're little miniature so it's like getting peppered by staplers or whatever but then as the thing progresses it goes on and on uh to where a helicopter comes in then like a artillery comes in that's a blank blowing holes in doors you know and then we are introduced uh, towards the end to a rambo style character they're one of the green army men is a rambo style thing that is you know the first few you can just like stomp on but then it gets harder and harder to survive his like the helicopter comes in and he he it cuts up his hands the blades cut up his hands and all this and to top all this off it's william hurt doing this you know high prestige profile uh william hurt um and there's no dialogue in the episode at all during the hit during the flight home it is wow. told completely he doesn't even no, say brohim. It, it is not a single brohim. <laughs> it sounds like um it it sounds like what is the Twilight Zone episode? It's from the original first season where um, the woman, it's completely no talking, where she's attacked by like little toy um, mm-hmm. robots. Uh, the invaders? Yeah, yeah, that came. The invaders? It's something that. The adaptation was written by Richard Matheson's son as well, who wrote okay. Trilogy of Terror. And there's even a Zuni doll like in his collection because the, the uh, assassin takes a, a trinket from everybody he kills. Oh, that's cool. and, and, oh. and he puts yeah but she's talking about the twilight zone yeah episode. i know but but you know i i know that i don't know what that answer is so i'm going to what i do know trying yeah. to sound smart scott thanks <laughs> it's all circular it's, it's okay. trick. that's just what it reminded me of as soon as yeah. you were talking about toys talking toys attacking and it not having any dialogue, um right? dialogue to it immediately i was picturing that how hard is that one to find like if you want to is it is that episode on youtube or you can get it for two bucks on uh, maybe three bucks on like rent the episode via amazon yeah. prime okay our guest on that show was uh an editor by the name of fred raskin who oh, yeah. has worked with you know uh quentin tarantino since uh sally menke passed and um zoller right he, he zoller's Zoller, roommate Jane, or something yeah yeah he was yeah. zoller's college roommate which i found <laughs> out on the air yeah. um and uh, he's he worked on both the Guardians movies. He's done the Suicide Squad now. Uh, I'm sure he'll be on Guardians three. Uh, he is a delight. Uh, definitely. Listen to yeah, that but episode. that 
Yeah. Um, so what about no, I was you? Say, but that's one that I just never in a million years would think about. And it's great. It is like the, the whole mini series of, of uh, nightmares and dreamscapes is mostly misses. They take some great material like crouch end uh, is, I know a, a favorite of Scott's and they totally ruin it. You know, they, they, they make it Claire Forlani's in it and it's, and poor Claire Forlani. Like, I don't think she's all that strong of an actress to begin with, but everyone involved needs but, to be in prison. <laughs> that very first episode is battleground and it is like legit great and nobody's seen it it's not in any conversation um you know i actually had like a whole list of things that i think are under underrated but uh but that that was definitely the, my pick what do you what do you think scott what, what are you up to um well actually the instructions called for like underappreciated slash um under discussed or something yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I would like to give a shout out to Cell, which is one of the worst Stephen King adaptations. And, <laughs> is this the one from 2016? With 14? John Cusack, like recent, right? Yeah, there's Samuel back. L. Jackson. Yeah, okay. It's got, it's got John Cusack, Samuel L. Jackson, trying to recapture a little bit of that 1408 magic. And Larry Cohen wrote it? Or did the story idea, I think? Uh, I don't have that information. Okay. In I think he's just the phone guy you go to. Then I will agree to that <laughs> okay. without checking. Um, I also don't know who directed it and, and I hope not to find out. I know so Eli I Roth was going to direct it for a long, long time. Um, he had the rights it for, it for a hot minute. Yeah. Yeah. He, he did. And I think Roth would have done something at least uh-huh. tremendously gory with it. Hmm. Um, the thing is, cell is not a good book. It's got a great setup and just an all timer, bad Stephen King ending, you know, hmm. uh, it's about, it, the basic gist is like um, one day a signal gets sent out to all cell phones where if you're on a cell phone at that time, uh, <laughs> your brain gets zapped and then you are like ferocious sort of 28 days later zombie. You know what I mean? Like you're you're just going around fucking people up in whatever mm-hmm. way you can. So um, John Cusack, who's who doesn't own a phone or maybe it's turned off or something. I forget the particulars, but he does not get zapped in, in this moment. A number of other people do not get zapped. So it's like them trying to navigate their way from one point to another on a, on, on a large map, you He's know, trying to up, get to his the kid, right? Of the I United think. States, essentially. John Cusack. Um, yeah. Yeah. Something. He's like a comic book artist. He's trying to get to his kid, blah, 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 blah. He's trying to get from A to B. And uh, meanwhile, all these, you know, cell infected (laughs) cell phone zombies are are trying to kill them all. It's it's uh, like a modern, quote unquote, sort of take on a a zombie thing from Stephen King. So great setup, not a great ending. uh, And the movie is just uh, borderline unwatchable. Like it's uh, (laughs) yours is a warning. Huh? (laughs) Yours is an active warning. Yeah, but it's interesting. What's interesting about it to me is that it's it's got somewhat of a decent budget, and it has two huge stars in it who had just starred in another, you know, wildly successful King adaptation, which was fourteen oh eight, and they are not replicating that magic. And yeah, it, like it didn't. It, and no one ever talks about this fucking movie. Mm. You know, uh, anytime I've ever brought it up, someone pops up like, "Oh, I forgot about that one." It's like, yeah. No one yeah, ever talked about cell. It looks like yeah, 2016. So it's yeah. only like five years yeah. ago. 
Um, and we've already forgotten it. Yeah. If you told me it was 2003, I don't think I, I saw this. I didn't see it. Yeah. I definitely didn't. Yeah. No. no, you should not see it. But also, well, now we have to. Time, I wish more people <laughs> had seen it so we could just like windmill dunk on it on Twitter because it's <laughs> it's a really it's really fun to like just sort of kick around because it's it's not great. Sorry, John Cusack, if you're listening to this or Samuel. <laughs> Uh, well, it's hard to uh, match the uh, glory of air flight that is Langoliers, but my pick is the Night Flyer, um, which yes, yes. every yeah. time I see it, it becomes one of my favorite of all because we know so because it's just it's like this little minor film that goes for these huge swings <laughs> oh, uh, every like fifteen minutes. There's some like massive horror sequence. This is by Mark Pavia from '97. Again, this one's release was right. weird, like it came out and then it kind of more or less ended up just playing on HBO. I only yeah. remember it on HBO. And now you can't really see it anywhere except YouTube. I mean, but that's the vampire in it yeah. was so good. Yeah, no, it's it so it's so well designed. It's one of the few times he takes shots at the tabloid press too, which I thought was really interesting. I feel like up before this, it's not really till Twitter and Trump that we see him really active about you know news outlets mm-hmm. and things like that. So I thought, but it, it's Miguel Ferrer from you know that everyone's from Robocop and Twin Peaks at the time uh, in a lead role as this like just a, right. just a total piece of shit. And it's always interesting to see a piece of shit as the lead character in any story. And uh, he is uh, basically being lulled into uh, looking at this person who is being dubbed it's the like Nightfire because he takes single a single, um, uh, what do you call those single Cessna? Yeah, into different um, independent small airports um, at night and then kills other either other flyers or other people there. Um, And kind of we see a cape occasionally, but it's a it's like a (laughs) it's like a 75 minutes before you get um, to see the face of this creature. And so the buildup's great. It's done in shadow. It's it's I think when I was younger, I didn't really appreciate it when I first saw it. I remember just kind of thinking it was minor king. But the more I see it, like just watching a couple of days ago, I was like, no, this thing has real legs. It basically he tries to warn the night flyer tries to warn Miguel Ferrer off uh, pursuing him um, in increasingly right. kind of a hostile ways. And then he ends up basically in this incredible bloodbath of a sequence, but there's these parts towards the very end that, that mm-hmm. really even more than the vampire that really stick with me because they are a vision of hell and uh, right. they're shot in black and white and they literally, yeah. it's the most Fulci thing I've seen outside of Fulci in it's anyone's hard, movie. Hardcore Fulci. It's it's unbelievable. It's like he really captured that feeling. And it's actually maybe scarier than a lot of Fulci because the way the eyes look and just the kind of um just the kind of uh way they kind of portray these zombie creatures and Miguel Ferrer is obviously kind of right. somewhat losing his mind in this moment, kind of almost being framed for what the Night Flyer is up to. Uh and I don't know, this one is um it's a, I think it's a real shame that no one's giving this like a nice Blu-ray mm-hmm treatment and uh getting in front of people i haven't actually read this i know the stories of yeah. nightmares and dreamscape so i'm i wish i read it just before we did no, it's very short gonna, it's something i want to read now because i'm curious uh how, is it a long story or a short story uh, like no, in terms of story okay very short i remember Definitely the movie having yeah. almost like a noirish feel like a pulp feel it, it's like that it yeah, felt it totally does. Yeah. Yeah. it's the 90s thing and sometimes that doesn't work. Like uh, the Resurrections, another one, that Dan O'Bannon film from that same time. It has that same feeling whenever they're in offices. <laughs> it's got that cheesy 90s pastel. But then all the scenes that are on the airport stuff are really freaking good, you know. But also, yeah, just so people, if you haven't seen this at home, look up the cre- look up the, va- the Night Flyer when his mouth opens. It is, it's a truly grotesque vampire vision yeah. that you don't see much of that kind of stuff. So anyway, it's, just, it's, it's really a Stephen cool. King movie starring Miguel Ferrer. Right. You should need exactly. no further information. <laughs> You're good. You, you know what and I mean? And it's on YouTube. Like Miguel so. Ferrer never got his fucking time in the no. sun. He yeah. was all, like he are one of our most all time greatest dependable characters. He's chewing that scenery, you know. And 
this was someone giving him the reins and like he's fucking awesome (laughs) yeah he's chewing scenery he's got his billowy little white shirt on the whole time and he's being sad (laughs) boss in his fucking yeah and it's his his painfully 90s office um and it's before the paparazzi stuff started you know like before we were all you know probably a couple years after this is where and and that's what it felt like felt like a precursor to these people do they have a soul how far are they willing to push it for for the story, well, the Richard, he, it's it's Stephen King's. Yeah, oh yeah. my god, that's exactly it with a vampire. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. crossing my mind as a double feature last yeah. night. I was like, yep, that and Nightcrawler, right there. Yeah, that's well, that totally true. Yeah, what, popped up in a lot of Stephen King stuff. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, I was gonna say that it's he. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, he's fascinating because he he's the guy that that uh, uh, hounds Johnny Smith in the Dead Zone. Mm-hmm. He's the guy that is like printing all this stuff when he offers Johnny Smith a bunch of money to to make predictions or whatever for his his tabloid and he turns him down and uh, uh and then starts printing all this stuff about how he's a fake and and all this that's the mm. same character as is this guy same character same wow. magazine the tabloid well that one like i said the easiest place was youtube and it was decent quality so um then we had one other task. Yeah. So our other assignment was that we had to pick um, a title or two that we thought one. would be good. Well, I don't follow directions like that. Um, so, but anyway, we had to pick um, one title um, that we thought would make for a good reboot, like something that maybe the first time didn't work or that it's dated now, something that we would definitely consider like rebooting and and trying something different. And, and how would you want to see it? Like, you know, how would you want to direct or the style or the tone mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i will kick off again and i will say that i did definitely question um a real uh honest to god like lawnmower man just because i've always <laughs> i've always loved that story and it is so no way what the original becomes but watching a guy eat grass for a whole movie and gophers is probably pretty dry so let's not go there i do think you um, guts the whole time i do think that there is something like kind of um, existentially scary about Langoliers, the idea of waking up in just slightly a different time zone. Mm -hmm. Um, So that one definitely was kind of an option for me, but I'm going to go kind of left field on this and do a really polarized one. I'm going to go with Rose Red. Um, So Mm -hmm. Rose Red, this was Stephen King's miniseries. No one's going to stop you from remaking Rose Red. (laughs) I know, right? Everybody's just going to be like, yeah, fucking do it, please. It's not going to be polarizing. No one's going to be like, what? (laughs) No, but like the show show itself was super polarizing, um, the series. Um, So this was Stephen King essentially like went to a network and said, I want to make my version of Hill House. And it's going to be like haunting, which is from the same source material, like Shirley Jackson haunted house thing. And so part of the plot is pulled from that, but he also pulls a lot from like um, the Winchester mystery house gets involved in it as well. And then it does all of this other stuff. The the long and short of Rose Red is it's like um, this crazy house with this mad history created by this woman named Ellen Rimbauer. And then um, this doctor comes in and brings all of these psychics in for the weekend and says, we're going to hang here for the weekend and see what happens. It's basically the same setup of The Haunting. But there were some things that I really liked about the Ellen Rimbauer backstory and that they did within the house that I thought was really cool that I'd never seen done anywhere else that I was like, if you just leaned in on that, it would do something much different. And it was the idea that the house had been constructed out of, it'd been made as an illusion. Mm 
So the entire house was kind of functioned out of optical illusions. Sometimes it was um, very clear where like you'd walk in and the entire room would be upside down. Mm. And then other times it was like the hallway, the door looks like it's 20 feet away and you're actually standing right in front of it. And it wasn't even just the optical illusions. It was that the house was constructed with auditory illusions. So you would think you hear a person in the room next to you, but they're actually on the other side Mm. of the house. And that I remember seeing the miniseries and being like, oh, that's wild. And the rest of it literally is like a bad televised series remake of The Haunting with a, a kid. And for some reason, there's a carousel in one of the rooms. Um, but <laughs> I when was this from? When was that made? 2002. Mm-hmm. And then they yeah. even made a follow up where they made um, one that was like the diary of Ellen Rimbauer, where yep. it was just her story. Yep. I do have to say. She has a really interesting backstory. That movie was not so great. Um, and I mean, Rose Red obviously had its its problems too. Ellen Rimbauer was um, dry. I actually watched Ellen Rimbauer back when we did Killer POV. Um, I remember covering it for that. And it wasn't that her backstory is not cool. It was just a, a kind of a dry film. Um, but there's something really fascinating about the house that's made out of auditory and visual illusions. And I remember really kind of gravitating to that and saying that if you could exploit that particular side of it, there's something really great there. And I would hand this to somebody like James Wan or Mike Flanagan. I even wrote down Kieran Foy. I bet could Mm -hmm. do something really cool with it. Um, So yeah. So that is my pitch. Um, One day I will, I will reboot Langoliers, (laughs) but I think there is something really fascinating about kind of the core root behind Rose Red. Yeah. Langoliers is a great pick. Um, do can my pick be something that hasn't been adapted yet, or is this something? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the talisman. Oh fucking prima donna, dude! I swear to God, <laughs> the, talisman. the talisman all day, all night. It, I think it's the last great thing. It, it, taking the Dark Tower series out out of the equation, um, you know, obviously, if I can make anything that had been made Dark Tower, doing it right, period, done. You know, that's you know there there's a gold mine in there that hasn't been mined yet uh but that if but to in order to uh fully express the the great way to do that would require us to record for another 2 hours so i'm not going to pull that um <laughs> the talisman is the other king thing that has never been done that is so cinematic it is kind of in that eyes of the dragon vein where it's it's got enough young adult in it to where it could be a, a very big family friendly PG 13 fantasy fantasy with an edge thing. Um, I don't know if you've mm-hmm. ever read it, but it is the, right. uh, it, it follows a, like a, a young boy is like 12 years old whose mom has cancer and he figures out uh, he's trying to save his mother. That is the whole crux of this thing. And he finds out that he can has the ability to switch switch between our reality and another reality called the territories. And as he's making his uh, journey from the East coast to the West coast, um, he is constantly sw- switching from our reality to, to this reality. And everybody that's in our reality has a mirror in the other reality. Um, they have an, the, a twin a, and um, but the other reality has werewolves. It has, you know, monsters. It has all this other stuff. It's a fantasy reality. And in that reality, his mother is the queen and and his, the queen's yeah. under a spell. And wow. she has to he has to find the one thing that can save the queen. And if he saves the reason why his mom has cancer and is sick in our world is because in the twin world, uh, she's under this magic spell. And he has, so if he saves the queen and in, in the, the territories, he can save his mother in, in real life. Uh, it is a very long book. He, uh, King wrote it with Peter Straub. 
Uh, so it was a it's a co writing yeah, venture. This an eighties right. book, so it's like at the height of King's cocaine mania. His great writing in that in that era. Um, his drug fueled writing and um. Steven Spielberg has had the rights to this book since the eighties and they've tried many, 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 many times mm. to do it as a mini series, to do it as a TV mini series. Um, there's been a couple of feature scripts, uh, but you know, I still think that, you know, it would be amazing to do a one last great Amblin style movie from Spielberg classic yeah. Amblin mm-hmm. to have him do this. And the way I see it, I mean, listen, the reality is when you think about the budget, you think about the time investment, it's probably got to be Netflix. It's probably got to be a streaming show, like a, a, a limited series, a 10 hour series or something. My dream version is they do to this, what uh, Andy Muschietti did with it is they do two movies that are, you know, epic, mm-hmm. you know, two, two and a half hours, uh, they kind of recapture some of that Harry Potter slash um, Lord of the Rings magic, you know, make these giant event, huge budget spectacle things and fully embrace the darkness that that's there. So that, that would be my, if I could snap my fingers and make it happen, that's not dark tower. Um, it, it would be the talisman. Nice. Nice. Scott, what you got? Um, <laughs> I want something very specific. Um, we have, uh, we've done an episode on this movie and we've done a commentary on this movie. Uh, that movie being maximum overdrive, mm-hmm. uh, maximum overdrive was based on a short story called trucks by Stephen King. That, um, <laughs> is a little less wild than the resulting movie. And I have, <clears throat> I have an interesting relationship with this movie in that, you know, um, I grew up believing that it was not good. <coughs> and I think we all did. I think that we viewed that as like early King um, before he got really good. Well, I mean, it's his yeah. one and only shot at directing. <laughs> yeah. So, so he like, um, this was, you know, it's his one at bat. And I think he's a terrible filmmaker, but. There's so much fun shit going on in Maximum Overdrive. And if you watch it now, and especially if you've watched it multiple times uh, recently, uh, you will you will start to see the brilliance of it come through. It's it's weird. I've, I've done a 180 on a number of uh, <clears throat> uh, King titles since we started doing the show. The Night Flyer being one of them. Um, it seeing all these movies, this is all the shit I watch anymore, right? Is fucking Stephen King. And so it has recontextualized a lot of them. And also you're like, you know, in the process of doing the show, we're like learning about these things, how they were made and why they were made and why certain decisions were made. Um, The only reason Maximum Overdrive was made was because Dino De Laurentiis really wanted Stephen King to do a movie and also, there was a lot of cocaine going around at this time. <laughs> and so they made Maximum Overdrive. Well, we did an episode on this where we sort of worked through our thoughts and feelings on it. Um, but then we did a commentary on this movie with Nacho Vigalondo, who, uh, <laughs> oh, for anyone who's not listening, or, or who's, not, uh, who's not listening, <laughs> for, for, for anyone who's, uh, yeah, if you're asleep right now, listen up, Jack. Um, 
for anyone who's uh, unfamiliar with Nacho, uh, he directed Time Crimes. He did Extraterrestrial. Um, he is a, a, a he did Colossal. He's an absolute mm-hmm. madman, a lunatic. I, I've met this man, and he is a, a living cartoon. <laughs> I love Nacho more than I love certain members of my family. <laughs> and this is a man whose chaotic energy we need to get on maximum overdrive. Mm-hmm. Nacho Vigalondo li- loves maximum overdrive more than probably anyone else in the world, which I discovered you know, while recording this commentary with him. And I would only entrust him to capture the absurdity of the premise, which is uh, all machines have been taken over by a comet that is swirling around the Earth that is giving them like fucking uh, basically uh, they're all 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 computers. Any machine is a maniac now from ATMs to steamrollers to, you know, uh, carving knives. Hair dryers, lawnmowers, um, anything. <laughs> See, I remember yeah, trying to uh, rationalize that movie because I remember questioning why the machine gun, because the machine gun doesn't but run it's across. A ta- it's a doesn't make a little cart in the car. Um, so sense. how is the machine gun firing? Don't. But isn't True. that just like a, a bolster True. to hold it upright? I mean, is that actually powering it? All right. So okay. I'll, okay. I'll right. You are edging into dangerous territory with this line of question. Okay. The first thing you want to do when you're watching max, Maximum Overdrive is don't ask any questions. Copy. Okay. You just have to let Maximum Overdrive happen to you. You know, and then you then you will be a, uh, able to let it into your life. I will embrace the ACDC and just go in full. Speed. Oh, it is! It is dad rock. It is. Um, it is. Man, it is not a good movie. But um, the the absurdity of the premise, you know, combined with the explosive, chaotic, and unpredictable nature of Nacho Vigalondo himself, I'm telling you, this movie would be incredible, and that's what I want to see. Um, I'm in. I've I've already bought my ticket. It sounds pretty dope. Yeah. So. Elric, I, I, I was gonna get to do Salem's Lot because I love I love Hoopers, but I also would love to see somebody go back to that grisly kind of Salem's Lot. Um, but the one that I I loved the book, and then when I saw the movie, it was cast mm. perfectly, and yet I just didn't. It, I don't love it, and that's uh, Needful Things. Mm. I would structure it like The Outsider. I would do a ten part. Right. Um, and, and have more stories, have more time for it to, so it doesn't have to all hit the accelerator in the first like 30 minutes where, you know, the, the devil's come to town. So it's, you know, a, a mysterious owner of a shop has come to Castle Rock or, uh, and, uh, it, you know, has, uh, exactly what you're looking for. Uh, you're kind of your heart's number one desire antiquity. And of course it comes at a cost, um, which at, I like the absurdity of the like pranks and some of the slowly taking apart the fabric of the, right. it's, it's Cranon basically um, taking apart the fabric of a normal rational society. Right. Uh, it's, it's cast so well, like Max von Sydow's the guy, Ed Harris is the sheriff should be a home <laughs> yeah, run. Right. And you know, yeah. who could, who could direct us? Of course, Charlton Heston's son right. um, who had directed nothing of worth before this. I don't know how he got this, um, but I love this as a book. I thought it was, a, it was, I mean, when I was, you know, 16, 17, whenever it came out. Um, I just think it would be a lot better to, because I think of things like Friday 13th, right. the series that mm-hmm. I, I liked a lot as a kid. So it could be a version of that, but a little bit more serious in tone. 
um, and a little more playful, I think. Yeah, there is something that could be much more mature about this as well, because mm-hmm. it felt like the movie version, it was very on the surface, right. whereas the book got very mature, very much about wish fulfillment, yeah. about what you're willing to give yeah. from yourself for an <laughs> item. It was just very much like, oh, you've got my high school jacket. Yeah, sure. I'll kill somebody. Like, yeah, it just seems perfect. so I guess illogical and kind of surface about it. And yet the cast was great. J.T. Walsh is in that. No, J.T. Walsh it's, is it's like... Yeah, he's great. Him and Inside Out are like the, the standing... The standouts. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I just think it, it could use some more air. You know, it could use a longer format to tell that story. That's one of the reasons I I think Needful Things would be good. There's plenty of, you know, uh, I, movies. I, I, likely, but. I, I agree with you on Needful Things needing to be expanded. Yeah. But I think it needs to be a dark comedy. Which are very I, similar. I, I, I've, I've talked about this before, and I feel the same way about the Tommyknockers. Hmm. Um, I think there's a way into both of those. Yeah, very similar. Um, it's about the rot at the the center of a community. Uh, particularly needful things is about like yeah. you know this classic all American town where there's you know there's that blue velvet sort yeah. of sinister undercurrent to it, but also these grievances are so fucking petty yeah. that you know that that makes it funny. I think mm-hmm. I think a lot of people misunderstand needful things in that it was written to be a dark comedy, mm-hmm. and I think if you if you got somebody who could, who was interested in like taking a real shot at, you know, uh, like a real kick in the balls to the idea of Americana and then the idea of the things we value that are so like, as you're talking about, like a letterman jacket, mm-hmm. you know, that are, are so ultimately useless, but they mean so much to mm-hmm. you. Um, I think there's the potential there for something yeah. really hilarious and really dark. Uh, and I would cheap, love cheap to, I, I, I agree that that would work really great as a series. I don't, I don't know if that tone would sustain itself for 10 hours, but well, I, th- I think if it started really slow, like I think he, they plant the seeds for things, let them grow a little longer. That would be the way. Yeah. To do it, but you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I also think that kind of the perspective is a big thing mm-hmm. because in when we look at the movie, it, 99% of it is is Max, Max von Sydow's character is the one that is kind of controlling everything. It basically just follows mm-hmm. him around the town. And I think if we look at it, something that has a similar concept, the idea of wish fulfillment, if we look at something like something wicked this way comes and we center the perspective to someone who is outside the direct ring of I love my letterman jacket so much I'm going to go kill my neighbor if it becomes like a third party it becomes more interesting and it allows right. us to kind of get a much more interesting take on it sure um yeah hey, so but you mentioned be, oh go ahead it's got to be escalation too that's the beauty of the novel is that how do these little teeny tiny things putting a flyer or you, you know on a card you know writing a note you know that that sounds and you know I don't know, innocuous, you know, it's how do all those things then suddenly lead to the two uh, reigning faiths in the town having a holy war? You know, it's like, you know, that that's what I think right. is so great about that book is just that slow simmer where you don't realize that the small evils that you're doing in your life for what you want uh, are contributing to, you know, society itself falling apart. You know, it, it is such a great, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, it's a great slow burn. 
You mentioned Tommy knockers. I still think that there is something that something that is scary about Tommy knockers. Um, and maybe it's just because the only thing that really scares me as a person, home invasions and aliens, because they're like the only two things that I have any sense of reality around, like ghosts. It yeah. never scares me in my real life just because I've never experienced it. Right. I know many people have. Um, but aliens are the ones where I'm still like, I don't know, I'm kind of thinking <laughs> right. about y'all. But um, Tommy knockers, I remember actually having some moments, like when the kid makes his sister disappear. Right, yeah. Um, I remember actually thinking that's kind of, it's kind of chilling. Um, and it gets really silly at the end where like the spaceship is being powered by his brain yeah. or something like that. I can't even remember exactly <laughs> where it goes to. I just remember him smiling and being hooked in and being like, eh. um, but I, I still think that the idea of a town kind of the entire town becoming possessed by aliens or the entire town becoming kind of controlled yeah. by aliens. I think there is actually something kind of unsettling about that. Not in like a Tommy knockers direction. Um, yeah. But yeah. Um, the horror there are people, there's something there because people are being changed. They, they get these alien artifacts or whatever. And, and the more they're exposed to them, the more they're, they're being changed. They're not the people that they started out as. So the horror there is very much a Jack Torrance kind of horror from the shining book where it's this, you know, your, your lover, your friend, your father, you know, aren't the same people that they were, you know, yeah. that they're changed, that they look like they're the same people, but they're not, there's something's changed and now they mean you harm. You know, I think that's definitely mm-hmm. a theme King, you know, hits over and over again in his work. Well, if you're at home listening and you have a great idea for this a pitch, <laughs> you're going to want to send it at the KingCast yes, King King on Twitter. Dean. Not Colors of the Dark. Go straight to the KingCast with all your pitches. They want to. Don't hear worry, them. we'll we'll add colors. No, of the dark nobody pitched. <laughs> no one pitched. I, I need a Dreamcatcher in there somewhere. Oh, geez, Somebody oh, is going to make that work. <laughs> nope. So, dude, no, is that not. possible? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we. Absolutely. kills world or whatever. One one worm kills world. Uh, uh, shit weasels. Shit weasels. Uh, That's the end of the. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're, you're, guys gonna, gonna, what? you're not going to make a good movie with Duddits. <laughs> you're just not. Duddits. That whole Duddits. character. It's so flawed from a fundamental operational <laughs> level. Like it's Lawrence Kasdan too, right? It's what, like, and he's a oh, good filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, it's he's a, a great, great writer. Like, on paper, happened? that movie should have been a classic, and yeah. and the truth has anyone is, picked yeah. it? Yeah, for you. Well, uh, for uh, Patreon on your show, uh, DC yeah. Pierce. Oh. Yeah, DC Pierce did it on the Patreon, and okay. we also did a commentary on it. Which uh, you talk about Yikes. going off the rails. Uh, there's a certain point where we just stop paying attention to the movie. I go off on like a ten minute tangent about the <laughs> the back half of Aerosmith's <laughs> discography, like you know. Just talking about anything other than what's happening in front <laughs> of us. Except for Morgan Freeman's eyebrows. Uh, yeah. I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. Those, wow. are, those are objectively great. Objectively All right. Great. So if you want to hear that, you can go to their Patreon, uh, which is, I, I assume they can find uh, on the sure. Twitter page, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. And you can listen to their regular show on the Fangoria Podcast Network, The King Cast. Thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having yes, us. Yes. This is very fun. So, Elric, I believe we have um, a deep cut and a movie fight this week. And we tried to theme everything writer because we thought that it would be cool if we were doing like 
you know, the meta horror writers. So we did a lot of research into other horror films about writers. And for our deep cut this week, we watched one of the most batshit things I have seen. Um, but this, it's one I've been wanting to see for a long time. I know it's one of your faves, right? Well, it's one of my, it's, it's in that list of like, if somebody said, Hey, you get your, you get to release something on Blu-ray. This would be my, this Arabato and a couple others are those ones that I just stumbled upon. I have the VHS of this film. That's the only way you can still see it. It does not exist in DVD in any form. It is on YouTube, luckily for you people, uh, it, at about the quality I sent you, which was a burn of the VHS. Um, yeah, it was definitely a little dicey. It was kind yeah. of dark in parts. And we are talking about um, the very skeezy, but also really smart and kind of interesting horror film, uh, The Black Room from 1982, I believe. Yeah, uh, 1982. 82, and this is Norman Thaddeus Young. And I'll tell you how I found this one. It came from my very favorite book on horror, um, which is uh, Nightmare USA. Uh, mm-hmm. with the regional stuff. And there was this article, they wrote, you know, an interview with the guy, Norman Thaddeus Young. And I realized I'd seen Frightmare from 83, which is the one where they take the guy who's died, who used to be a horror legend's body. And it's kind of goofy. Nothing it's, like this. It's one. campy and yeah, silly. It's nothing like this at all. This is very serious. This, yeah, This is not silly. So the setup of the black room, which I had not seen until yeah. Elric sent me the YouTube link. Um, and I, and I checked it out and it's one, do not watch with your kids, like even in the house, like the soundtrack is basically an hour and a half long orgasm. Yeah. Um, like as soon as I start, I was even in my office. Um, and as soon as it started, I was like, I got to wait for everybody to go to bed to watch this one. Yeah. Um, just way dirtier to watch so, it in the dark alone. Yeah, it's way, it, it's definitely a very skeezy <laughs> film, but it is this guy who is kind of a wannabe writer he lives in van nuys and um which is a suburb of los angeles with his wife and two kids and he seems to have this very kind of normal life and he decides he wants to be a writer so he's gonna like rent someplace that he can go write stories and what he ends up renting he finds this like sweet fucking deal where it's like 200 dollars a month he is renting this room in this house up on mulholland drive it's like this a fantasy gorgeous, room or something yeah this hollywood hills home that advertises this fantasy room and he shows up and the entire room is painted jet black full of pillows and candles and wine and it's clearly like a sex room. And there's white and orb, white orb um, like tables. That's tables. the thing that yeah. really stands out about the movie. It's got this weird design like that. It's very, yeah, something interesting there. And so anytime he goes in here, he starts having these like crazy intense sexual fantasies. And you also realize that the owners of the home who are renting him this weird room are also watching through the wall as he has these weird kind of sexual yeah. And photographing it. They're brother and sister, which makes it even weirder because they're all watching his crazy shit that he's doing. And she's well, from then Conan. After, she's in Conan. Oh, she is? Yeah, she's like kind of a wild. She has great character. eyes. She's amazing looking at um, so then he decides, cool, I've got this crazy skeezy room where I have all these crazy sexual fantasies. I'm going to start bringing some prostitutes and some other women who I'm just having affairs with. And he just starts kind of bringing women there. But he um, also tells everything that happens in there to his wife, but under the guise that he is telling her, like his fantasies that he's writing down. Yeah. She doesn't think he really has a room. She thinks it's this thing that he's been doing to spice up their sex life and it's been working, but she has no idea the reality of what's happening in the black room, which is yeah. this other interesting layer that it kind of opens. So it's as interested in marriage and sexuality as it is horror. It's kind of equally weighted through the story because it's 1980. It's coming off the 70s. So I can see why 
some of those ideas are lingering. Mm-hmm. And it's very much like this, you know, casual sex that exists in the room. But then he goes home, he tells his wife about it. Um, and then it kind of goes from there. Like it definitely goes to some interesting places. I was not expecting the twist um, where uh, it ends up going, where we find out about exactly what the brother and sister's motives are. I think are we, to I think have we have to there. say that because this other, and nothing we've said is a horror setup, but that's what won me over. It wasn't just the sex stuff is interesting, but actually the scenes, like, look, I wrote afterwards and I think I'm so right on this. This might, the ultimate double feature, if you went to the new Bev, and we played Martin first and this yep. second because Martin is all a film about is he a vampire? And this film is basically they, the brother needs these almost daily blood transfusions. And so they have all these devices. So while you never see fangs in this movie, it's very much like they're a vampire couple. And it's um, really real and creepy when they do those sequences. It's off-putting and it's kind of disturbing them. But it definitely, um, it escalates going from just like a sex film to now they need bodies. And you find out that that's why they're luring people up there and giving them drugs and alcohol and stuff. And why he's so good for them because he's bringing up lots of girls. It's not just one. So he's not, so he's actually helping them. And then there's feelings growing between them, the part and the whole, the whole family get embroiled. And it's, it's a really messed up adult. And I also think it pretty good here in the Stephen King episode in the sense that like, yes, it's much lower rent than King, but some of the things happening in it are things I could imagine him writing about. I, I could oh give God, him the same yeah. story and I think he could go to town and write a much better one. Um, you know, but um, it is something so psychological and so yeah. adult and very much kind of like a play on the modern family and what that means versus, you know, what our inner desires are. But like, there, there's, there's a lot going on. Legit creepy imagery in the last few beats of the story cross cutting. There's just some kind of disturbing imagery and it's fun, interesting. The cinematographer that I don't know too much about it, but I, I've asked many times. It has vinegar syndrome written all over it. It's a film that I cannot believe isn't out yet, so there must be a reason. Um, but the DP of this movie is the guy who would then go on to direct things like The Hitcher, which is a masterpiece, mm-hmm. Robert Harmon. So so he, that one tracking shot, that one steady cam shot where a woman runs away and it follows her down the hill. Oh, through it, the It's because he was a steady cam. Yeah, it's because he had his he was like one of the first people to have a steady cam, and that's why that shot's in there. And it really elevates the movie because it's kind of like, holy shit, she's running through the Hollywood Hills, and it's just I don't know. This it's is a movie. Great. She's barefoot and in a nightgown and having just have been exanguinated. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, we, it's a super tense shot. If we had talked about this movie even two years ago. You wouldn't, unless you could find the VHS, you wouldn't be able to see it. But like I said, right now it is on YouTube at the same decent quality, at least. So I'd highly recommend this one. Um, and hopefully that we get a Blu-ray one day to this yeah. because it's just a really cool movie. It's just one I've been like, you know, excited for you to see for a while too. So it's always fun when um, we get to share these ones. So. Yeah. This Watch is it with awesome. Martin. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, so Elric. What time? Let's fight. For movie fight tonight, we wanted to do movies, horror movies about writers kind of going through some shit. Or in this case, we went with book collectors, people who are avid readers and book collectors. So we are going Tibor Takas' 1989 I Madman. Against Roman Polanski's 1999, The Ninth Gate. And before we go any further, obviously, I, Mad Men would be uh, a better pairing in terms of like what the story's about with In the Mouth of Madness. But we instantly said any movie you put In the Mouth of Madness will win every time. There's no movie that can really beat In the Mouth of Madness. Why even play? I don't think it's ever coming to the movie uh, movie fight unless it's up against like, you know, the best possible Lovecraft type thing. Mm. So, So we left that one out. Yeah, um, but let's talk about I'm Madman and why it would be comparable to In the Mouth of Madness. 
it has some of the same trappings. And I revisited I Madman this afternoon. God damn, I love this movie. Um, I had completely forgotten how fun this is. So the whole setup is that um, there, and this is Tibor Takis. This is hot off the gate. Um, He makes I Madman. And the whole setup is that there is this bookshop clerk. She's a really avid reader. And one day while she's there, she picks up this comic book, this like super pulpy 1940s style comic book called I Madman and starts reading it. And it's about a serial killer who kills people and sews their faces onto his face. Or pieces of missing body parts. Pieces, yeah, yeah missing pieces. body parts. And all of a sudden, some of the things that happen in the comic start happening in her life. And then she realizes that she's actually being stalked. And she realizes that the further she reads in the comic, she is able to kind of predict the things that are going to happen because it's happening exactly as it is in the comic. It's real, real film noir. It's real pulpy. It feels real 1940s kind of hard-boiled detective, but in this absolute trippy twist. And I had such a good time with this. It is crazy scares. Um, The guy's face, there are so many good scares where he kind of just appears and he wears this mask that covers up like the lower half of his face. You know who reminds me of this time? Because obviously, you know, the tone has little elements of like a dark man is saying, but who he looks like is uh, Peter Laurie in Mad Love, where oh, he's yeah. got those body parts and he's got the bald head. He actually, I, I would be surprised if that wasn't an influence on this. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, no, this is a lot of fun. Jenny Wright is the lead and she is the lead in uh, Near Dark. You know, she's the one who lassoes the boy at the, at the opening scene and she's great. Clayton Runner for April Fool's Day. It's it's got, uh, as it's plus, we'll, we'll get to, you know, the battle here because this is actually a very fair battle, I think. Um, it has the best last image gag I've seen in almost any movie. Like yeah. it is, uh, it's like, it's one of those magic cinematic moments where you're like, how'd they do that? <laughs> That's how it feels when you watch it. And it's totally on point. Uh, and Tibor is a, a lovely character who I've gotten to know lately because uh, through work stuff. So, and he's just a really nice guy. And I feel like this movie should have propelled him more. You know, it he's obviously out, made a lot of movies, but not at the Whereas... Point. Yeah, whereas The Gate, I mean, which was, was just a, a couple of years yeah, before this, that, yeah. but The Gate feels like a 1980s movie. Like yeah. everything that we think of of 1980s movies, it's kids on bikes fighting monsters. It's a 1980s movie. This is 1989. It does not feel like a 1980s movie in any capacity. It feels like something completely different. Um, and because of that, I don't think it hit very well with audiences. Like it just was not what we were watching at this time period. We look at 89 often as like this banner year of horror. It's it's like, you know, that's one of the years, like 86, 89. There are these years that we look at where like a lot of good stuff came out then. I Madman never gets play and everything else that we were seeing feels nothing like this. Yeah, I don't. I definitely didn't see. I saw the cover of this one when I was young. I did not see this one until much later, like I definitely maybe a decade ago. So it's not mm-hmm. one I saw when it came out. So I was it was a real pleasant surprise when I finally caught up to this one. Um, OK, so that's I Madman. So we've got somebody with book collecting, working in a bookstore and a book does play a major part because things are coming to life. So things that can bring a book that can bring things to life brings us to the ninth gate, which is uh, quite kind of a return to the kind of subject matter in a lot of ways that rosemary's baby uh tone has it's got that like very dark film but with a black sense of humor all the way through it it's always mm. funny um and characters are doing like really desperate and terrible things it's uh, johnny depp uh you were just talking about him obviously earlier today i think this is actually one of his um best later you know roles uh he's playing a rare book dealer who has been sought out because uh, apparently there was only three 
uh, or two copies, but there's uh, a couple could be fakes of a book that was written by a guy kind of like, it's almost like the beyond who he wrote this book that he believed the devil himself was talking to him and could be conjured from it. So and therefore it was by Lucifer himself. Yeah. And, and, but that, that there, he was then killed by, you know, people at the time as a heretic. And there's these three books out there, Frank Langella, who's just phenomenal in this film he's he is so he's, good he steals the whole movie basically he is a guy who wants to get it authenticated um because he actually wants to use it so he's hired johnny depp to basically and it's kind of a globe trotting film it's he has to go to all these very distinct places to, to authenticate these books um when lena olin is one of the characters you have to authenticate she always goes utterly bonkers in every movie she's in i love her I know, and i love the scene that he has with her and that it's absolutely yeah. hilarious in this um and it's so it's kind of darkly funny for a lot of it and it's based on a a book series uh by arturo perez i remember their really popular club dumas is the actual title for mm-hmm. this one um he ends up basically and i won't go too far ends up with you know satanists uh, that's why i said that it's got, got that rosemary baby companion and uh they do go all the way with the delivery of these kind of um you know, using the book and Frank Langella pushes, I don't want to ruin it for people who haven't seen it because it has a, to me, a really funny messed up kind of last act, but also goes there to that esoteric kind of, um, kind of thought provoking horror by the very end, which sometimes might be why it doesn't do as well. You know, this film did actually good business, like internationally, it made like 69 million off 48 million budget, but in America it did not do well. Um, so, you know, again, it's another lesser uh, talked about film. Obviously, Polanski as a you know problematic uh, figure is always, you know, uh, tough to talk about in any situation because mm-hmm. his films are it, most people can't even get past that part. But what's interesting about this, everyone talks about Rosemary's Baby, right? So it, it, because it's just a Stone Cold classic, I think this is a really smart, fun dark movie and the last of that kind of horror tone that he's really done Um, yes so an interesting comparison totally different tonal movies these completely but somehow they're both noirs yeah they both have kind of like this pulpy noir quality they both are very aware of kind of what they're doing they feel meta in that capacity where they are about mysteries about people hunting books or exploring books or trying to, you know, it feels very kind of pulpy 1940s, you know, zine, um, like the, the, the serials. Um, and so, yeah, this definitely like there's a femme fatale that exists in this movie, um, in ninth gate. Um, I kind of know which way I'm going to go, but uh, yeah, who's going to throw down first? I, here, I, 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 well, I can, I can tell them who, what you're going to pick. Um, I am going to, agree on this one i think it's uh i think i madman i am definitely going i madman okay no because i I really like ninth gate but i think it's like a it's a different kind of watch and it's different kind of film mm -hmm. whereas i madman it's like a guarantee if you if it came down to recommending one blind to somebody i feel like i madman delivers every time somebody new watches that film yep and for me ninth gate even though that i like it i like where it goes i do think that some of the scenes had tonal problems because there were times where i was like this is funny and then there were other times where it was definitely not meant to be and there so there was this kind of shift that was happening that i don't think many audiences got and even though he's got uh, that very european feel like some of his other movies too have that and i do like that but i i think the mm -hmm. other films a little more the other films definitely tighter 
funnier and more just original. There's something very original. original, It's stylish. It's the way that it's shot, the way that it's composed, the acting. Um, Like even the acting choices have a very specific aesthetic to them. Um, With Nightgate, it did make me want to go collect rare books that I could never afford to do. Immediately, I was like, oh, this looks fascinating. I want to collect rare books that are written by the devil. Um, It's a little in line with some of those ghost stories we've been talking about with antiquarian stuff. You know, it has a little Mm -hmm. bit of that vibe too which i always dig no i like it a lot i think this is actually a very good matchup they're total opposite tonally and but i do think if we're gonna pick one today i think i'm giving i'm with you i'm mad if only one can survive i want i madman to make it through the apocalypse yeah. so Plus, you know yeah. we have to pick tibor over plansky at this point yeah totally <laughs> I mean, Tibor's awesome. <laughs> so yeah guy. let's go that route so um so yeah so i madman has survived to see another day okay so that was an epically uh longer than normal well, show but that's so are we going to make it to an hour? Hey, uh, no, not lately, yeah. but it'll happen sometime. But that we can blame the KingCast because, you know, it's like having a whole other podcast within our podcast. <laughs> um, but make sure you go check them out. We will say uh, breaking news. We just confirmed this before we got on air, which is super right cool. beforehand. Yes, it's we, awesome. Are, we will have another screening uh, with USC and Fangoria at the end of um, February, I believe. It's February, February 26th. Yep, February 26th. And we are very excited about the movie because we get to play, I have to let you say it. Day of the Beast. Yeah. So guys, this is um, Alex de la Glacia. And I I love him across the board. Like if you have not, I was going to give an update on 30 coins next week. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to hold it. I need them, to catch up on a couple, yeah. Across the board, like even his his more commercial stuff, like Baby's Room, his wilder stuff, like Witch and Ambition. Um, I just I love him, and so this is one of his earliest films. It is a horror comedy, and I'll just give you kind of the log line: is um, a priest needs to stop the Antichrist, but doesn't know enough about the devil to do so. So he hires a metalhead Satanist and a con man magician to join forces with him to try to stop the Antichrist on New Year's Eve. Um, it is amazing. And it is so funny and so irreverent and so wrong. But just, um, I remember seeing this. Somebody passed me a VHS of this probably 15 years ago. And it was one of those, like, you can never see this in any other format. It's trapped on VHS. It's never had a release here. Um, and it is so fun and one of those things where you're like how has this never had a release and you see his like voice is so clear like this is the one i remember the clearest i haven't seen Mm -hmm. it probably same time as you i saw it and it was it's probably my favorite of the ones i've seen so i will be excited to see it again but the cool news is severin is putting this out on um blu-ray uh so we will be you know showing a very nice version of this um so i think maybe around the same time or maybe even before it comes out so that is exciting and they are putting Day of the Beast out um, alongside um, one of my other total fascination films, also by da- um, Alex de la Iglesia, uh, Perdita Durango, which is just one of his most batshit films. It's not, it's it's fun, um, but in all the wrong ways. Like, yeah, great performances <laughs> and it's wild and really dark, but it's one film that was like banned for a long time for reasons. It's one of those films where me and you were going down the road of doing it as a thing, but I think neither of us want to have post conversations that it's are all about physical sexual every, violence. Yeah. Every trigger warning. Yeah, yeah, it's so. not even just that there's like five rapes, including Ra- Rosie Perez wrote somebody in yeah. it, but it is just, it's, Every trigger warning I could possibly think yeah. of. Like, um, so that one was a bit more dicey for us to kind of have a post conversation on. Yeah, Whereas, the, the Beast 
it's just fun. Yeah, it's no, I'm excited fun. to see it again too. I'm yeah. not going to rewatch it until we watch it that night. So I'm not either. I, mean, I think um, it's fun to be in the moment. So anyway, yeah. you can uh, information will be coming out. You know, probably in the a few days around here. Next couple of weeks, we'll probably have that up on our socials, and that will be on the 26th. So go ahead and mark your calendars and join us. So thank you all so much. Um, we have our Patreon show for February coming next week, and then the week after that, we will be back. Um, I'm gonna give I a did it all for you. About a couple of weeks from now, just remember this. Santos Dominus. That's all I'm going to tell you. I did it all for you. Uh, all and, for Sam you. and Sam Neil. And Sam Neil. And Sam Neil. Those three yeah. are your clues. Uh, <laughs> we're, what we'll be diving into. That should be fun. Yeah. So thank you all so much. Stay safe. Have an awesome weekend. The Dark Podcast is a Fangoria podcast production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers Tara Ainsley and Avi Gold. Associate publisher Jessica Safa-Vamir. And our amazing sound engineer Ernie Hurtado. Fangoria Magazine is now available in Barnes & Noble. Please listen to our sister show, The King Cast. And thank you all so much. Have a freaking awesome weekend. <laughs> <laughs>